0: We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond Companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. For the holiday stretch, we're publishing a few of our favorite episodes from this year of Moment of Zen. Today, we're airing our first ever episodes one and two with Mark Andreessen, released one year ago. Mark joined us to give his take on SBF, Twitter, censorship, and more. In the second half of this extra long episode with Mark, we got into the ideas of Nietzsche, Heinrich, Burnham, and more of Mark's intellectual influences. Please enjoy this throwback.
1: Hey, what's up?
2: Oh, God, there's video, and Dan is totally fucking outclassed me on the Zoom backroom game. Look at this shit. <laughs> yeah. Dude, motherfucker, man. I this, this, yeah, this what...
3: I mean, I got I to hold up the, the, the camera Cuban side of things.
2: God damn it. I was hoping to occupy the David Sachs role in this, like, all-in podcast rip, but I think I can't, given that David has the best Zoom background in the entire podcast, I'm not sure I can claim that seat. Oh, Chamath um, is better than David. Is Although it?
3: David has improved his. I think he, he got feedback his look like, you know...
2: Cheap. Look at look at this cardigan, dude. This is incredible. What the fuck is going on? Do you want me to here?
3: be the I mean, I can get rid of it.
2: <laughs> uh, this is this is this is amazing. This is Dan. I'm seeing a whole set of Dan I hadn't I hadn't noted about before. This is this is great. Yeah, you're definitely. I, I'm, a 10. I'm limited on my
3: books here. So so next next episode it depends which which home I'm in. I have better books.
2: Oh, it depends? Like my college. <laughs> which home? Depending is, which home I'm in, this is, oh, I didn't realize Mehmet Oz had joined the chat here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Depending which of my por- real estate portfolio, I can run for Senate in one of fourteen yeah. states. This is <laughs> this wonderful. Is me, this, is, this is not making. Um, this is
1: not. So, guys, is SBF going to kill himself, or what, what's gonna, <laughs> what, what's gonna, what's going to happen? <laughs> well, he. I, they originally were
3: going to put him in the same uh, holding facility that Epstein was in, and I think El Chapo. It's one in Brooklyn, but he. Got the two hundred fifty million dollar bail uh, because his parents put the house that he bought them with the ill gotten gains. <laughs> then I think I think there was another person that they, an undisclosed uh, bail person, but yeah, he he's out. Yeah, and so is Carolyn. They can they can reunite before court.
4: Bring for the molecule poly- back. <laughs>
2: for,
4: yeah. For me, the big the big news was I had I, I knew Palo Alto real estate was expensive. I had no idea um, that, <laughs> that, a, that a house on this Stanford campus. <laughs> uh uh was was worth 250 million dollars it's, it's very exciting uh for those of us who own real estate in the bay area
3: <laughs> well i i i don't know you can't believe what you believe on the crypto autist twitter but i think one of the the tweets that i saw which kind of is interesting is th- there was like a report that basically he had negotiated I'll, I'll do extradition if i can get out on bail and then the other question that people are wondering is, did he know that Caroline and Gary were were going to flip? Because it just so happened as soon as he agreed to the extradition that they dropped that um, that they had already pled guilty to, to criminal trial. <laughs> it's not even civil. Like they, 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 these people are going to prison uh, without even a trial to just specifically flip on on. Uh, SPF So and then and
2: then and the news hit as soon as like the plane was in the air. It, it, Literally there was like it, the it, first photo. Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> the photo of him looking like uh Chapo getting right. off the plane, that you know.
2: They've gone state evidence. That's the real story, by the way. Can we just comment on the real story? He looks way better coming out of prison than he went going into it, <laughs> right? Like he actually looks pretty studly now. He looks—it looks like a scene out of Narcos or something. And then, how did he have like a shirt with French cuffs in jail? Like, did you notice that that he had like the cuffs undone without the French cuffs thing in it? Yeah. How yeah. the hell did that happen? Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Isn't it ironic how how Caroline ended up being like very based um, to SBF's um, SBS woke? I don't know if based would be the term I used to describe. Yeah. yeah. Right wing rationalist. Uh, her, her, uh, Tumblr, her Tumblr was a little raw. Uh, you, have to, you, have to, you have to put it out there. She wanted a harem uh, like where people fight each other uh, for, for their rank.
3: <laughs> um, I didn't he, realize she was younger than he was. So he kind of preyed on a younger person at okay. uh, Jane Street. Because uh, she, hey. she graduated from Stanford and then went to Jane Street and, and then joined him on Alameda. I also, I mean, the, the, all this stuff came out in the SEC complaint. He owned 90% of Alameda. Gary had 10%, no outside capital. So that, that seems a little odd that no one had picked up on that. And then, uh, I mean, it, it, the SEC, based on these two folks, they're basically saying that from the start, the entire thing was fraud, right? Like we were talking, about, oh, maybe he got out and over his skis in May. No, like the money that hit FTX at the beginning was going right to the Alameda bank account. Uh, that 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 software that was right. He did not write the code. He 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 was right. Harry wrote the code for him. uh But yeah, I, I mean, it's a it's it's the the scale of Madoff with the the drama of Theranos. Like we're we're you know. I mean, so, maybe it's a plea deal and just go So through.
2: with the financial autism of crypto, right? Kind of yeah. throw it into the mix so as well.
1: Predictions, guys. Predictions. What, what happens? They they all go to jail. SBF. Yeah. Mm. Does, um, what happens to CZ?
3: Well, I, you know, I think that is a,
1: (laughs) or what happens to Binance this year?
3: Well, look, whether it's Binance or Tether or everything, since I've been in crypto, there's always been an offshore exchange or exchanges and, uh, people have always said, oh, this one's going to come down and, you know, it's usually the U S government is not, not the reason it's actually, it's either a competitor or they implode, they get hacked. Uh, and I think I, at one point, I think I shared this. It's, it's, so if you just go back, Mt. Gox, based in Japan, hacked. The next one after that was uh, Bitstamp, hacked. Um, they're still around, but, you know, shelved what they used to be. Then Bifinex, which created Tether, hacked. Then Poloniex, they actually are the the, the best one. They, they sold at the top, they sold the Circle. And then when they sold, um, basically what happened was, Circle is a US-based company. Run by a legit management team, so they went through the customer base and actually had to start doing KYC, know your customer, and they basically had no volume left. Like all, all, all the Polo volume had been offshore, and so when they had to clean up the business, it, it overnight, like Polo went from biggest exchange in the world. It was it was the Binance of its time, to nothing. And then that's actually when Binance showed up, and and so you know throughout that, obviously a plug for for Coinbase here is like Coinbase has existed the whole time, but the entire time I was at Coinbase there was always some new competitor, almost always overseas, uh, actually always overseas. And, and they were offering leverage and all this other kind of stuff that you couldn't offer in the US. And like, even if you went to the SEC or the SCFTC and said, Hey, we want to do it by the book and, and follow every rules. Absolutely not. And so what would happen is you would, you would have these folks and most of them intended to be in Asia and they, uh, they would offer 100x leverage and you talk to any prop shop trader who they're allowed, like the professional traders in Chicago are allowed to trade, they'd be like, this is the greatest thing ever. I get to trade 100x against retail. Like I, I'm usually in, in equities. I have to compete. And I mean, Antonio used to live in this world. I have to compete against the most sophisticated people in the world for like like fractions of a penny versus I get to trade against retail who are trading on 100x leverage who have absolutely no idea what they're doing. And so I, I think hopefully after... FTX and and you know put, put Binance to the side, I I do think you're gonna see a little bit more of a, a clampdown because now I think a lot of these international countries that were kind of letting people shop for jurisdiction before don't don't want to end up on a US sanctions list. Because I, I think post FTX, I don't I don't think you can have your, your thing in Malta. I mean Singapore basically already said that they when I was at Coinbase, they wanted to be a crypto hub, no longer. So I, I think it's gonna tighten up, which generally is gonna be good for the the kind of above board actors. And, and probably the decentralized stuff, right? Like, so it'll be like this barbell where you have the, the companies following the rules and then the stuff that's actually truly internet native with no centralized counterparties that could do fraud.
4: Yeah, so Dan, this is a question I was gonna ask you and it's, I'll, I'll ask the leading, leading form of the question, which is like, is is a shadowy offshore entity with, um, you know, completely opaque, uh, you know, books and then, you know, the ability for, you know, individuals involved in it to walk away with all the money, hypothetically. Like, is that consistent with the spirit of crypto or is that like actually not consistent with the spirit of crypto?
3: Yeah, it's it's. Um, I mean, what is it? Gellman man amnesia, right? Like I, I used to believe everything I read in the newspapers and I show up to Coinbase and then all, all I'd see is every single time there's an article in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, I could just point out every single uh, you know, inaccuracy. And, and the, the fact that there has been no mainstream publication that, that I'm aware of that has just simply said the, the difference between FTX as being a kind of centralized Ponzi scheme fraud no different than Bernie Madoff or anything else that could exist in traditional finance. And the fact that throughout all the stuff that's happened this year, all the stuff that happened in May with all the liquidations that happened, and then more recently, not a single one of the DeFi protocols, the, the major things where by the way, Alameda had loans out. None of them weren't, were, you know, they were all solvent. They, they were able to liquidate because it was just code and, and it just ran you know, as designed. And now, obviously there are DeFi protocols that can get hacked, and but those are different things. Like from a pure, like can I create the fake Fiat at FTX account with the fake accounting books and then hide it and, you know, sponsor Tom Brady and Giselle and all this other, like no, the DeFi protocol can't do that because, uh, you know, the, the crypto autist can look on Etherscan and be like, huh, something's off. And it, it turns out actually what caught... Uh, uh, you know ftx to begin with was people kind of like paying attention on a bunch of stuff on the blockchain and and so i i think it's like the the branding is always what is the most negative story i can say about crypto and conveniently leave out the facts when it actually worked as function especially and it's like oh maybe the world should be a little bit more like this
2: yeah i mean just to fully drive home this web through crypto thing, hoping it doesn't sound too much of a plug because now i'm working in web3 but like it's weird, right? Like full web three crypto has completely open books all the time, right? So like in the case of my little company, Spindle attribution company, we can do better modeling of a, of a business of a project. You like, we walk into a pitch with better dashboards than they have. Right. Because we have more access to data. We're a little bit more. We can spend a little bit more time. We can figure out like how users are actually moving through their. And it's really strange. Like one of these days, a crypto company is going to go public and just won't be able to comply with non-disclosure rules. Right. Because like you're going to know their you're going to know their revenue until the second before the IP or the second before the actual quarterly earnings call, because. It's in a dune dashboard, bro. You could just go and look at it, right? There's no way to hide it. So anyhow, it's just, it's a bizarre imponderable, but maybe you thought about how this is going to work going forward, Dan. Well, but like,
3: well, I mean, even even Coinbase, for example, like just the fact that Coinbase's volume is public every day, because that's just the way crypto exchanges work. Like you can put a model together. Like there could be a real-time dashboard of like, this is what Coinbase's earnings for the most part is going to be. And, and like the fact that none of the kind of like financial infrastructure in Wall Street is like at least done that right. in a way. It's just like, it, it will get there and then people will kind of be like, well, why are we waiting like this like weird 90 day period to then have these like people come in and you know stamp it, which obviously their potential you know Enron being an example of where you can know, you get the wrong auditor and, and they can kind of hide things. And so it's like, well, why aren't we just doing this continuously real time in a transparent way that everyone can actually see? It, it just clearly is the future the question is like,
1: how, how do we get from here to there? Right. Dan and I were together when the FDX news first came out, we were in Puerto Rico and because I'm interested in a good story, I was immediately getting to okay, what's what's the redemption arc, uh, or what's the next, you know, whether it's five years in prison or 30 years, in, you know, he's only 30 years old, uh, and even Carolyn is even younger. So th- there has to be like some second act. And and one thing that Dan mentioned is we, we weren't sure if anyone who'd ever been charged for a big fraud had ever kind of redeemed themselves in any any kind of way. Um, Mark, you've been doing business for for many decades now, and you've seen people go to prison and come out, and and you know have next acts obviously this is like you know a huge act um that's un- unprecedented but i'm curious for your reaction to that
4: Big. Problem. I mean, look. People have been convicted of things and come out and done fine, right? I mean, so the, an, an obvious example is Michael Milken. Um, you know, um, you know, and, and it, he, he, you know, his, he, he had secure, you know, sort of uh, convicted of securities violations, um, and came out and you know, has reinvented himself as a, as a, as a philanthropist, um, and um, you know, uh, a, a man of many interests. Um, uh, it, and I think he's done quite well. Um, you know, again, a, a, a much smaller example, Martha Stewart. Um, you know, I think uh, probably is not the same as she was before but you know came out and has done you know some interesting things um yeah a big it's a good question a big fraud well I mean, martin is
1: on the redemption tour right now on twitter what is that <laughs> martin screlly he, he's on his <laughs> martin own Sh- redemption martin
4: Shkreli. but again it's like what yeah was that like how much of that you know what, what did he get when he got he went down for what it was like issues with it was how he kept the books at his hedge fund right yeah. but the it wasn't a but it was weird. Price, yeah, right. It was some set of those things. But it was weird because I think part of his defense, if I have it right, is I don't think anybody actually lost money. Yeah,
3: I, I, I don't think, think it, customer money fraud is is if you if you were yeah. limited to that, I don't I don't think there's much of a redemption arc from there.
4: Yeah, I'm just trying to think. It's like, um, yeah, I mean, M- Madoff is still in prison. Ken Lay, you know, di- uh, died before he went to prison. What about Bernie Evers? Bernie Evers, I think, is is he still in prison? I can't remember.
3: Yeah, that's what I said to Eric, is I, I just think that if you if you touch customer money, like I remember yeah.
4: very clearly
3: at Coinbase, we had at one point as we were growing, we had the outside counsel, and they, they kind of said, here are the things you're not supposed to do. And if you cross this line, you go to jail. <laughs> it was like, okay, like, don't ever move customer money from the account that says customer money <laughs> to anything else otherwise. And, and like, that was so clear. And so when when this story first broke, I'm, I'm like, okay, like this is, he's totally toast. There's no way well, to come
1: back. Well, from. they mislabeled it. I mean, you you could
3: understand that, right? Eight <laughs> <Yes, laughs> billion sloshing around. By the way, of which, like, you know, a month ago, you had all these publications saying he was the you know the, the genius founder. Like, we could all be as smart as him. The world would be great. And then a month later, as I don't know, like I, I you know wasn't wasn't paying attention,
4: so. Can I just say how amazing it is that the disabled account was for exactly eight billion dollars? <laughs> yeah. Well, wasn't wasn't was it, a, wasn't
3: it, wasn't it there? Was that story was something like a, a sketchy yeah. Korean account or like
4: yes, a Korean our creator Korean. account or like yeah, our, Kore- our Korean friend. Korean friends. So yeah, uh, yeah it's in, it's in, it's, in the, it's in the indictments. I don't know. It's in the yeah. uh, it's in the indictments. Uh, the the government documents. But yeah, it says that it, at one point they were. But the real question it. is,
3: do we think that the Michael Lewis book movie is actually going to be good? Because because realistically he. He was embedded for six months. He he couldn't detect that he was a fraud. Maybe it was a whole game, or you know, like maybe he was one that tipped off CZ and we're gonna find out that later. But like, if you, if you can't tell that he was actually a fraud up
2: close, like, I don't know. I mean, the thing with Michael Lewis is that his narratives are always perfect, right? I think we've discussed this, right? Like, it's always this, and I, and I think often that can work well. I think The Big Short, like I I had a small brief role in the whole credit crisis. I was a jury junior quant Goldman, and I thought The Big Short did a very good job of telling kind of what that was about right but it was all a little bit too neat and perfect but i guess that's how it has to be for it to be presented as like a a popular narrative
0: we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors quick math the less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service the more margin you have and the more money you keep but with higher expenses on materials employees distribution and borrowing everything costs more so to reduce costs and headaches smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform. That's one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems and improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors, over 37,000 businesses have graduated to NetSuite. So do the math and make the move. Startup founders and execs running scaling businesses know all too well how easily their systems break down and expenses skyrocket. NetSuite is a proven way to cut costs and boost performance. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/zen. That's netsuite.com/zen. netsuite.com/zen. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started.
2: Here's another question. Why didn't SBF just like run a moderately successful crypto exchange, pocket a bunch of money, live in the Bahamas, and that's the end of it? Why did he have to make a total shit show of it? Was there actually a viable business there, or was it, was it always necessarily a fraud? Like, could a normal person, maybe less hopped up in whatever meds he's on, could have just said, you know, that's it. We're just going to run this as a normal business. Or was that just, was it like Madoff in which there was no hedge fund? Like, it was like 100% fraud from day one.
1: And what was his well, end game? Like, what was, what well, was he- like? Yeah. I,
3: I, you can speculate on the end game. Let, let me let me steal, man. Like his his vision, <laughs> at least in terms of what he was pitching people, and uh, the, even even I last year was kind of in awe, a little bit of like believing that he was really going to execute on this. It was okay. There are no derivatives in crypto. All of the derivatives are offshore. He went. He he was living in in Berkeley, Alameda. That was and and he moved to Hong Kong, so. This is actually one interesting thing is most American crypto founders, when they want to do something of of this, like legality on on the, like, you can't do this in the US, refuse to move overseas, right? They're, they're pretty comfortable in San Francisco or New York. He, he actually got up and and moved. So, so he, he did that. The other thing is like FTX originally, I'm sure there were plenty of Americans that got through it in the early days. FTX offshore really didn't have American customers for the most part. FTX US did. And it sounds like those books were commingled. So that, that's going to be a huge issue for him. But he was offering uh, derivatives and, and actually offering it He it worked to Jane Street. Like the, the, the product actually did work, big start. He was using all the customer money and, and didn't have to pay loans and all, all this other kind of stuff. So he was scaling it with like a cheat code. But in terms of people actually doing the trading, it's not like they didn't actually, weren't able to do the trades. Like I remember during the uh, 2020 election, he, he, he booted up like a prediction market because he could do anything. It was Wild West, he was doing everything offshore. And then his move was, okay, I'm, I'm crushing you, you know, crypto bull market 2021, I'm moving to the Bahamas. I'm going to take all of this offshore money that I, I I can't offer these American customers derivatives. I'm going to start snapping up assets. So he bought this company, Blockfolio, turned it into FTX US. He bought 7% of Robinhood. And then he started sponsoring all these major athletes. And if the scam had continued to go and it hadn't necessarily blown up, and he had gotten this legislation passed, which, if you know that had happened, he would have probably backed himself into basically becoming the preferred U.S.-based, like CFTC-approved derivatives exchange, and it would have been the first crypto-native company to actually have that license. Like I, I, we went a huge rabbit hole on Coinbase on this, and Coinbase has since made an acquisition in a the company there. But he was he was out way ahead of them. And so, if you all of a sudden get derivatives, and Antonio, you know this, is like if you have derivatives, that's it's like 10x or 100x the size of the 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 spot market, and so that would have become the institutional play in the u.s and he would have effectively taken all this offshore money and used it to buy brand equity in the u.s both in the political donations but also just kind of like having all these you know celebrities um and and then would have gotten himself a law passed and and now had a regulated u.s entity and he could have moved back to the u.s and, and maybe shut down the the international so, so that that's the steel man version of it. Obviously, it was a complete fraud from the beginning. Based on the SEC stuff, is that he was using customer money the whole time, and that was how he could grow so fast. The company only started in twenty nineteen, and he was worth thirty two billion dollars last year on paper. Like another indictment of all these stupid lists, by the way. It's like, what diligence did they do? It's like, oh, here, here's the spreadsheet. It says I'm worth thirty two billion.
4: Great, put him on the cover. Like, come on. So I guess the 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 counter. I mean, there's a bunch of counter arguments to the steel man, but um, the, so. Yeah, so, so the market, so the the, the exchange was real. The, the exchange was real. However, to the extent that it was absconding with the customer funds, that it, you know, its, its various activities were being funded with the customer funds, let's say, and then it was you know absconding with them and transferring the hedge fund and so forth. Like, and this is ultimately what caught him up, right? Which was like, okay, it it, it was real, but like it was real, but it could never settle out. Like, Dan to your point, like it it had to it had to get all the way to the end because if it if it if it was ever asked to settle out. Like if all the customers ever actually said, you know what, we're just going to take a breeder here and let's just like you know take stock of what we have, it was always going to cave in. Is that right? Until it until it got to a certain until it until until it got until it would have gotten to the point that you described. Is that right?
3: Yes. I mean, look, I'm sure there are a bunch of details that I'm I'm glossing over there, but just at a, at a peak, if, if you really believe this, like fifty billion dollar Alameda, like that was way more than the customer assets, right? There was plenty of leverage. They had rode up on the value of these tokens. So if they'd taken more liquidity last year out, potentially you could, have, you could have closed the gap. So so there was probably a point last year where you could have dumped on dumped on retail, as the term, uh, for, from his standpoint, because obviously Alameda is a is a mark maker and like that that, that shouldn't be in the same thing with an exchange. But if he had taken out enough money and, and, and filled the the customer gap, a billion on fifty, okay. But obviously there's some leverage there, so I, how much it compresses down. But yeah, look, probably never 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 happens, but. If he had gotten that, that license in the U.S. and had been out there for a year or two and had bought himself in with all the politicians and, and Wall Street, I don't know. And how clo- how got,
4: close do we think he, got, he, he was to getting that license?
3: That, that's another question. Like, a, you know, you talk to different people and they would have said that they would have never passed. And obviously the Republicans won the House by a little bit, which means that that law that hadn't, if he hadn't blown up in, in November, could he have gotten it passed as part of this omnibus thing? Maybe. Yeah.
4: And if, if you believe, I mean, if you believe his statement, his statement is that he, you know, his statement is he donated an equal amount of money to Republicans. And we just don't know what it, what it was. So at least in theory. Yeah. I, I if, if, that, if that's true, he was working both sides to try to get it yeah, yeah, done.
3: So, so, so very well could have. I mean, uh, I think you were the one who pointed out, Mark, of just like how much the, the Enron, all the money ended up coming back. And so I went back. My favorite thing is like splunking through just like news articles. And so just how Enron was covered. And then as, as the fraud became you know, clearer and clearer, the politicians quickly shifted all, all in one lockstep to just giving the money back because uh, they didn't want to be involved with it. And so I, I think we may be starting to see it. Supposedly ProPublica is willing to give back the 1.6 million that they were doing. So,
2: But The Intercept is not or is still debating it. As or of or semaphore, you know.
3: Uh, <laughs> I, I I just all of the SBF mainstream media headlines just remind me of the austere religious scholar when when Baghdadi was killed. Um you know, it's just it's, uh, what's the most terrible way we can we can kind of push them?
2: Austere crypto entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Disheveled crypto entrepreneur, that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Altruistic.
1: Altruistic. Utopian. Yeah. Um so as, as we make predictions for Twitter for, for the next few months, is is uh is it a fair predictive model to say the most entertaining outcome is the most likely? Like, <laughs> I mean, if that's not a law at this point,
2: like, I mean, it's been, like proven multiple times, but, but, but let's run that out. That means, that means JCal runs Twitter, right? <laughs> Cause that would be the most amusing outcome. And has, is that going to happen? Right. Is that the next step? <laughs> or Bology, for example,
3: <laughs> I th- no comment. I, think, I think Elon's gonna, you know, it's, it's going to be like the, the CEO and then the head of software and, and servers. I <laughs> think That's the CEO job.
2: I mean, that's probably actually the most likely output. Like right? the yeah. lieutenants that somehow get under discussed at SpaceX and Tesla who keep these companies running while he's off in, in Twitter land. Like one, one of those people should probably run it. Right? Well,
3: well, it's well known that, that SpaceX, like Gwen, like runs that company, the business, like making sure that, you know, all of the launches, they're doing it the launch every six days right now. It's insane. All of that happens because of the operational excellence that she's, she's kind of driving. And, and Elon is on the critical path. Like he just like, whether that's Starlink or space, Starship, like, okay, I need to be in Boca Chica and I'm just going to drive to to whatever the next part of the critical path is. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it works at, at Twitter, right? Like you're, you, he's head of comms and had of figuring out what the blocker is and and the, someone else can deal with the advertisers and subscription um, revenue and all that stuff.
2: Every 6 days so we we land rockets on their ass every 6 days now. That's just what we do now as a species. It used to be a miracle, now it's boring. That's that's how it goes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Let's send map up,
3: send up satellites so that we can have Zoom calls from anywhere on earth. Like hey, right. it's
1: amazing. Let's map out the the of uh, the best outcome and what is the outcome that we're trying to avoid. Bo- like let's say we're we're Elon's advisors. Marcus Literally, uh, you know, investor advisor to Elon. But let, let's say we were hypothetically, uh, you know, he was soliciting our advice on how to get closer to that best outcome in the next, you know, six, 12 months and how to avoid the the possible worst outcome. W- what would we be telling him? Dan Antonio, do you want to take a first step?
2: I think what Elon's trying to achieve, not not that I know him at all or at all involved in any of this, but I, I think he I think he is ultimately kind of a centrist who believes and is trying to maintain to some degree, although going about it perhaps in a in a slightly haphazard way maintain twitter is like center court in the elite wimbledon right like everyone sits there and dunks on each other and that is the center court and i think if he fails which the cynic in me says he's probably doomed to fail in the, over the long term right which is that social media will fragment and we can't share a a, a, a you know a, a social network i mean look look at the hue and the cry that has erupted after some of elon's decisions when it seems as if the politics driving the decisions have shifted just ever so slightly, right?
4: But if I can, uh, the hue and the cry. But but again, here here we go back to our uh, our old argument about 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 uh, the nature of conflict in, in our system. The, the hue and the cry has resulted. in, uh, This is public. You know, Twitter's Twitter's usage uh, is way up as a consequence of the hue and the cry. Right. True. So. Yep. I mean, isn't it, is it, 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 it? Look, maybe social media is unique like this or Twitter is unique like this, but like, doesn't controversy just drive usage? The flip side of that, though, is that I think
2: blocking is good, and I have a shitload of blocks, and I know everyone here has a shitload of blocks. And like, at some point, you just say, no, I'm going to erect a wall with this body of thought. It's not worth engaging either for you or for me. And like, we're done, right? Like, it's a breakup. And why wouldn't that happen at a network level as as a counter
4: argument, Mark? Because the killer app for Twitter is to duck on your enemies. <laughs> okay. <Well. laughs> Right, <laughs> it's no fun. It's no fun if they're not there. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of one of the one of the funny things about Twitter, this pre pre Elon, one of the funny things is like block. I don't know if you know, block doesn't actually block, right? right? Like I still see a lot of their tweets. <laughs> um, and in particular, it doesn't block on uh, it does. it's a uh, quote tweets. It doesn't block in the uh, the content of a quote tweet, or at least a lot of the time it doesn't. I always I always thought that was on on, on purpose. <laughs> So I'll give you the bookcase that I think is interesting is
3: you get through all the chaos and there's going to be a lot um, and a lot of iterative stuff and a lot of reversals of the decisions just to kind of keep the the train moving. Um, But I think that distribution is is what Twitter is ultimately, like from a product standpoint. And if they actually figure out that, like, rather than some of the stuff, the features, like, it's actually about like, okay, I have an audience. I want to get it out to as many people as possible. Uh, Twitter is the best place to do that. I think that they have a lot of potential in eating into video, right? Like, which is, if you, you just look at whether it's TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, like, the, the push is on video. And the reality is, if I want to get it out to the most people possible, like, where, where would I do that, right? And, and actually doing it on Twitter feels like the place that more people can, can distribute video. And he seems, I have no inside knowledge, just based on what he's publicly saying, is thinking about like, okay, how, how do I get a Mr. Beast, who obviously is on YouTube today, and just actually give him more of the share of whatever he's doing. And, and the view count change that we were, you know, presented with, I think, this morning, and it's insane, the level of like, shipping is happening, right? Like, yeah, people can make fun of the square corners and the businesses, but the fact that they like made that change, and then implemented it, and it's like, yeah, is it perfect? No, it like kind of looks bad. But the reality is, it's like forward progress. And he's extremely good at doing that in, in his other businesses. So I, I think making the, the kind of shift towards like, this is distribution, which is the value of the New York Times and, and all of these traditional newspapers is like getting the memetic idea out to as many people as fast as possible. That, that feels like the bullcase case. And so it's just like, solve through this, all this drama. And I bet you the average American doesn't even really know like, you know, what the average journal going to Mastodon thinks. Um, but- the other, the other interesting thing is he's he's super into polling, right? And so, I don't know if you guys know this, I, I actually built one of the first Twitter API applications in college called StrawPoll, and there was no native polling. So he's like, you'd reply like with a number and it did all this stuff from the API, it was, it was pretty janky. But the thing I, I was super interested in is like, okay, so the Wall Street Journal does a poll for a politician with 1,000N, and, and you get all the statisticians and made they go, oh, blah, big numbers. Like you don't actually, you don't need more people, but, I think there's something really powerful, but how many people voted in the, the poll, Elon for like CEO, 17 million. And like, obviously you could say they're bots and, but what if they just actually start to get like more targeted? Like I, I put a license up and it's like, I get some benefit or I get, you know, cheaper, uh, the the Twitter blue, but now I can actually show that I live in this city and like, I am an American citizen, like, it, and and now all of a sudden you can actually cut a vote. but That to me found, it's like really, really powerful because I think I posted this today in the chat before the, he, he just at-tweeted cinema and Tester on something in the Omnibus bill and Tester responded to him, right? Like, and no one at Twitter used to do that, right? like But but the fact that now you have someone who's just like running the business, like like Hearst or Pulitzer was running a newspaper and saying, hey, uh, do you want comment for Twitter? And I expect you to respond on Twitter, not through some channel. So it just went direct. I, it, I think people are uh, underestimating, like, When you actually have someone with a point of view that this distribution is actually really valuable, like what, what you can actually do with it. It's just we've been used to
1: Twitter and not having any innovation for 15 years. We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our
0: sponsors.
4: I was going to say there's there's two big macro and I, I'm involved in it so um, I'll I'll be careful what I say but um, there, there's two big macro bets kind of embedded in in what he's doing that, that I believe in so so one is just Dan to your point like the the current state of consumer internet social media user generated content after the last eight years is it's very suppressed um you know it's it, the censorship regime is very heavy um and you know and, and as usual with censorship machines there's like the formal censorship regime that basically says you know if you say this you get nuked and then there's the self-censorship regime that results from that which is people don't you know don't don't uh, don't want to stray close to the line um and so uh, you know it is like really significant that you ha- you know kind of at, at long last you have somebody who really is going to open up the, the the conversation of course that that's already begun um, the other, also to your point, but I'll just I'll double underline it, which is um, the speed of innovation. Like the, my, my argument basically is that um, you know sort of you know Steve Steve you know Steve Steve Jobs was a super genius and and, and Apple was a spectacular, obviously a, you know one of the great spectacular successes in, in the whole history of business and tech. But you know I, I'd say people, a lot of people in the industry have adopted what I would consider to be an overly simplified view of the Steve Jobs product development ethos, which is basically right. You know, basically do very little. Right. Um, it, it's like it was, you know, Steve's thing always was, you know, say no to a lot more things than you say yes to. And, and you know, the response to that is, yes, if you're Steve Jobs, that makes total sense. <laughs> right. Because like, you you know, the world is your oyster. You have all these things that you can do. You, you, you know, you, you really want to focus in for for most entrepreneurs and for most companies like thats I don't think that's actually good advice. I think the answer often is actually do more um, and be more aggressive and move faster um, and um, be more experimental and try more things. Um, and, uh, you know, he's obviously way on that page um and so i I think both of those are pretty significant wedges to really open up the opportunity space
1: my hope is that people like uh his peers uh whether it's like a larry page or a bezos or a gates or something are the 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 failure mode would they be looking at elon and saying oh i don't want to face the the negative um you know feedback that he's getting um i'll keep doing what i'm doing a positive take would be oh i too can innovate within my organization. I too don't have to be hostage to what a certain group of people in my, in my companies, whether that's Google or whether that's the Washington post. Um, if more people felt that they had more agency um, of his peers, that people who actually do have the agency just ha- have to have the sort of, you know, want, want to do it. But
3: you said three people are not involved in their businesses anymore. Like that, that's the difference is Elon is like in the factory day to day. And then now he's obviously involved in Twitter. All three of those people are, are- but they could
2: be.
4: Or, or or if you're one of those, right, you could t- you could take over another company and do it, right? Which is the other just like amazing, spectacular thing happening here, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, look, we our, our system, I don't know, you could, you could, there's like a positive way and a negative way of looking at it. The positive way is Nassim Taleb's, you know, kind of thing where he says that, uh, you know, that our, our, our system basically curses our, our best and most productive people with wealth and fame, um, right? And then, you know, you can kind of park it because um, you don't need to work anymore. Um, that you know, the, the negative view is our system is brutal uh, towards you know the, our, our most kind of creative, primal, um, you know, kind of Nietzschean niche figures, um, and uh, you know, over time, the, the the pressure of being in that level of spotlight just gets to be like too intense, and people just don't want to live that way anymore. Uh, and I think it's 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 a it's a little bit of a combination of both of those. But yeah, I, th- I think exactly to your point, like I, th- I think um, yeah, Elon is providing a great case study for actually, no, like get off the couch, like do something great,
1: which I think is is fantastic. Yeah. One thing you've you've tweeted about, Mark, is this idea that, you know, even if a company like Twitter did, let's just say, want to implement, you know, total free speech uh, on the internet, they're actually, like, it's not only up to them, that there are other companies that are involved in the internet stack that if pressure were to be so big, could, um, you know, they could, if they, you know, companies that own operating systems or other companies could could get involved. And, um, you know, we saw hints of that a few weeks ago with, uh, the sort of elon challenging apple and then you know it turned out he had a, a nice walk with tim cook or whatever but it seems that it's possible that there could be at some point something you know civil war is a strong name but like some inner conflict between between tech companies given that there's so many different or the different choke points
4: yeah, so, you know, look, I think it's becoming fairly obvious now, but I would just say the the, the censorship pressure, the, the, the pressure to control, and I would, you know, say subvert, um, you know, the technology stack at each layer is, is very intense. And I think maybe maybe outsiders have not fully understood how intense it is, but it's, it's incredibly intense. Um, and, you know, I've been arguing that you can, you know, you can see it, I think, increasingly clearly at the level of social media, user-generated content. You can see it in search. You can see it in video. Um, you know, you can see it increasingly in payments, um, which is a whole, a whole kind of related thing. Um and and I've been arguing that this same pressure is going to end up causing, you know, the same kind of censorship regime that is in place at, you know, let's say the social media layer or the user generated video layer. I've been arguing that it's just a matter of time before that also shows up in the browser, (laughs) shows up in the email client, um, shows up in the operating system, shows up at the ISP level. Um it, it it's already it's already it's already showed up at the CDN level, right? It's already showed up at video distribution networks, it's already showed up at DNS. Right. Like you can, you know, you can you can lose DNS um, if you say the wrong thing. Um, and so it, it, it's at many of the layers already. And the, and the other layers, I, I think it's just a matter of time. Like, look, it's every every major mobile operating system um, has child protection safety features that could be turned into censorship features tomorrow. Um, every email system has anti-spam capabilities that could be turned into censorship tomorrow. Every browser has child safe, right? Um, uh, And various kinds of security measures that could be turned into censorship tomorrow. So, so, so the mechanisms are already built in too. every, by the way, every ISP has content filtering, you know, they've all got the ability to filter content, do packet inspection. Um, And so the, the infrastructure is in place for basically a complete lock in of every layer of the tech stack. And there are very powerful forces, uh, both inside and outside these companies inside and outside government uh who want the kind of censorship regime that you see in social media user generated user generated content to kind of apply across the tech stack. Right. And so that's a so that's a vulnerability. Any any layer of that stack, anybody who tries to bring to market, you know, whether it's a phone or it's a browser or it's an email client or it's a social media app or anything, if you try to bring it to market and you stray off the rules, right, that have been established um by you know kind of by by, by by this kind of pressure campaign, um, you are in risk of getting nuked, right? You're you're just yeah, you know, and, and, and this has happened, right? You know, the parlor was kind of the classic example where they got like nuked at every layer layer of the stack on the same day. Um the the counter argument on that, the kind of pro pro Elon argument is like, boy, if you were gonna fight that, right, you would fight it with the biggest megaphone in the world. Right? Like you 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 would you you to, to fight it, like you would want to be able to attack back at such a gigantic level of like presence and visibility and strength. Um, you know, you, you'd want to have such a large stick uh, to be able to whack away at the people who are coming at you. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> hypothetically, if you were going to fight that trend, you would buy Twitter. And and also have a rocket company that can put your
3: own private uh, Internet space lasers between the satellites so that you can actually beam down the content to anyone on Earth. Yep.
4: Yeah, I look, you know, maybe, you know, there's always this question Antonio mentioned. There's always this question of, like, do we end up with separate stacks? Do we end up with separate? Is there a red phone and a blue phone? A red search engine, a blue search engine? You know, do, do these things cleave apart? You know, historically, you know, they haven't really. Like, in, in, you know, we could, again, we could kind of debate, like, why why that is. But, um, you know, they haven't really. But, you know, look, if, if you, yeah, if you want to get sufficiently cyberpunk about it, right, exactly. It's like, okay. You can live in the free world, and you have your satellite connection, and you get access to whatever you want. And then you've got this like heavily constrained and filtered view uh, that comes in over over the wire connection to your house because all the telcos have been compromised or whatever, right? Um, and so may- maybe that's maybe you know look maybe that's our world in thirty years. Antonio, the
3: red phone is your Android,
2: right? Like that. That's-
4: <laughs> uh, am I the face of Android in this
2: group? R- really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can't use Android. Um, there's just there's this wonderful company called Apple that uh, makes this amazing phone. With all sorts of interesting privacy features, yeah,
3: it, it is really interesting that Apple, like all the serious cryptography people I know, they all use iPhones. Uh, I mean,
2: unless they're actually
3: using like a hardened Android, like running something custom, but uh, because they actually buy into Apple's commitment to security, and like obviously the Sandburg and Bernardino shooter was an example where where they they stuck with it. But as Mark points out, they're a switch away. That's why I I was really surprised for them to see this advanced data protection, which they announced. I don't know if you guys, it's kind of minor. But now your iCloud backups, in theory, will be completely encrypted to the point where they they can't even give law enforcement the kind of like encryption key for your backup. Um, And then they claim that they're not going to turn on that uh, CSAM, you know, local machine learning thing that uh, child child, abuse uh, material for the, the jargon. But, but I, I don't know. It's, uh, it is really sad to me, though, that there are only two, two mobile operating systems and, and there's no really viable alternative. Like, you, you can't be a modern person and be a green bubble. So I, I think, like, it would be <laughs> useful uh, to get to a place where, like,
2: the messaging stack moves out of these OSs and then you can actually potentially use a, a competing phone. In the defense of green bubbles, by the way, just as a, a point on green bubbles, it's a completely American provincial thing. Who the hell actually messages through messages? They can't even thread my conversations correctly the way that Signal and WhatsApp normally does. And so I think that the green bubble stigma is a little bit less outside of the U.S. because try, for... Try
3: telling that to an American high school student and having to be <laughs> the one that can't
1: be in the group chat. It's like the definition of ostracism. Like is it? Ostracism. Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's transition to... Um to AI and chat GPT uh, because, um, you know, it seems like we're having the same battles play out. I I guess I have two big questions. One is sort of like, does open source stand a chance um, here, uh, you know, um, or or are we really just at mercy to whatever um, politics happen within um, open AI or or whoever wins? Um, And then also, you know, one thing we were commenting on previously is like, you know, and one thing Mark, you've said for, for a long time is all tech usually leads to, um, tech innovation usually leads to to more jobs um you know or, or has always led to more more jobs and you know human uh, empowerment despite um you know the critics fears of of replacement we um, 've always created more jobs than it replaced and and with um with what 's happening here it, it doesn 't seem as obvious that 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 is the you know inevitable conclusion um given how many human capabilities um it could um it could replace that previously we thought maybe it wouldn't, maybe those, you know, artistic or creative or caring um, capabilities were, were safe. Um, but uh, it feels like those are the ones that came after first. Anyways, I'm curious how, how we'd react to either of those two questions, the open source, and then the, um, you know, what it means for for people.
4: So my sense is that, the, you know, what what's led us here, like what, what caused the breakthrough, right? What caused this kind of explosion of like, you know, basically functional AI for the first time in, you know, basically 70 years, that started around you know 2012 and then has you know extended forward into what we're seeing today um and basically what you know what what the experts will tell you is it was sort of a combination of three things it was sort of algorithmic advances um uh so uh you know neural networks and and, and so forth getting getting really good and people having new ideas um it was uh moore's law you know kind of hitting some level of critical mass so processing speed kind of actually you know becoming available at scale uh, to actually run the algorithms. Um, and then, um, it was the training, the training data, right? Access to large training data sets. And in particular, there, right, the big unlock was internet, basically the internet as a training data set, right? And so Google Images is a way to train image recognition, and, and, um, you know, internet text is a way to train, you know, chat GPT and so forth. Um, and so, you know, those are like the three big drivers. Um, uh, you know, so you kind of break those apart. So training data. It's like it's training data hard to come by you know no it's it's actually you know pretty straightforward you can scrape the internet um and um, a lot of people do um and so and and then there's also a lot of algorithmic work going into training on small data sets um and so you know probably that becomes pretty generally available um compute power and resources um you know today running one of these things at least at scale is pretty expensive um, and there's actually a shortage of compute capacity right now because there aren't enough, uh, you know, uh, uh, there aren't enough uh, chips in the cloud that, that run this stuff. And so there's actually a shortage today. But, you know, it's, it, again, it's Moore's law. It's, it's just chips. And again, there's there's a lot of algorithmic um, uh, improvements going into to, to, so that you need less compute capacity. Um, and then the algorithmic improvements, like a lot of the algorithm, algorithmic improvements are happening kind of behind the scenes. And these companies aren't necessarily, you know, the like GPT is not open source. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, there are companies now that have made huge investments in AI where the, you know, they they do have proprietary advantage, you know, having said that, there's a lot of papers, um, you know, and a lot of papers being published and there's a lot of researchers, a lot of these companies that publish papers and information, you know, the, the, the field is advancing very quick, you know, the AI courses in the CS departments at major universities are, you know, huge now. Um, and so, um, and then just the advances are happening really fast, right? And so the algorithms six months ago are no longer that interesting, and um, and so there's just this constant churn and change. And so the idea that any one person has a secret sauce that they hold onto for 20 years seems, you know, seems seems pretty unlikely. So, so yeah. So aspirationally, I think you'd like to say in the future you're going to have some combination of open source code with you know track, tractable economics on compute, coupled with you know access to large data sets, and then you get open source alternatives. Um stable diffusion is, you know, the best case scenario, you know, where that, that's actually playing out with image generation right now. You know, that's what yeah. I don't know. Like, you know, you've got really smart people at some of these companies um who want to build long term enduring advantage and are gonna try to, I think, erect barriers the same way that you know the people always have in business. I'm glad you mentioned stable <laughs> diffusion.
2: I actually interviewed Ahmad, I guess, before he did a big fundraise and he was too famous to go on little podcasts like mine, but he's a fast, he's a fascinating figure, right? I think he's either Cambridge or Oxford educated. Um uh, you know, he, he, he doesn't come from a Western background. He just has, he's, but he's absolutely committed to making this be not just open source, but something anybody can build on. Right. Like in, in our interview, he mentioned that, you know, yeah, no one's going to own this. Anybody in India can re- train their own models if they want. And that's, and if they have different standards, they can, they can build their own AI tools, uh, th- th- which I think is fascinating. And obviously the way forward. Um, One question I had for you, Mark, one, one thing that was raised recently, I think Yishan Wong uh, responded to it, which is like, Some artists, because a lot of this generative AI is obviously trained on the web, right? It's like these large language models are based on the hive mind that is the web, right? That includes both images and text. A lot of those images are actually owned. (laughs) There's actual copyright, right? And these are the, this is the training corpus and the output is not necessarily that, but like a human brain, it looks at a finished work and produces another one. But given that it's being done programmatically and we're about to layer economics on top of it, isn't it the case that maybe that training set, there is some value that should accrue to the creator who created the thing that inspired the generative AI. And of course, my, semi-snarky response is, well, good thing we actually created a way to actually own things in the digital world <laughs> and put them on chain, right? So at some point, like NFT-owned art is going to be the input to, not to turn this into like a total Web3 shell channel, but it, it isn't, I, I do wonder, do you think about that? Like, is that, is that like a thing that yet, like the inputs to the corpus are actually owned by people who kind of like want to monetize their content?
4: Yeah, there will be some of that. And look, you know, people will probably, you know, there'll probably be a business of creating training data. Um, it'll be one of the things that actually happens um you know but but look i it, it, as you as you well know like there there is just a lot of imagery in the world that is free right um or for which if somebody does own it there's no way of even knowing that um and so there's a lot out there there's a lot of text that's just free you know so it's like okay i don't know if you don't have access to, you know it's like get you know getty if you don't have access to the Getty photos for training you know the journey doesn't matter i mean there's you know the, the, num- the number of photos in the world that are not owned by getty is are much greater than the number the number that are Um, and so, you know, it's like, okay, maybe there's some legal regime for compensation, you know, maybe things just get cut out of the training set, you know, maybe by the way, the future of how AI operates is that it's just going to get trained on things that aren't copyrighted, right? And that, and that in and of itself is going to change the, you know, the, the, the nature of how it works, right? Because it'll, I mean, sort of the classic example on this is, let's say you can't train it on new books, right? Because they're copyrighted, right? Um, And so therefore you can train it on old books. Right, um, and like all books written, you know, prior to 1923, are public domain, um, and so you could just train it on the corpus of books that are written before 1923. By the way, all of which are freely available on Google Books today. Um and then you know an, an AI trained on books written prior to 1923 would let's say have very
1: different views, <laughs> right? The AI <laughs> that, ethics people won't like that.
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It's like okay, like do you really want? Yeah. Do you do you really want you know whatever? Yeah. Do you really want 19, 1923 morality? Uh, you know, kind of imported into the AI and you know even 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 people you know even pro free speech people might might have some issues with that. Um and so you know they had some they had some different views back then. <laughs> um and so. You know, it's like, okay, how does that play out? Um, and then look, and then there's you know the u- ultimate big question at the other end, which is, like, can you even know? Like the way these things work is like, can you actually attribute, right? Like, so you know, Midjourney creates an image. What were the inputs? Like, what what you know? And if if it, yeah, I don't even even if you could trace it back to the thousand images or whatever that it were relevant to the, the new image that it generated, you know, like I, I don't even know. Like like you know, what what do you even do with that information? How much you know? How much how how small fractions of a penny are we talking about here? How do you ever actually get the money back? Like
3: But isn't that how all art forever has been? It's like artists they they learn from the previous, they they mimic that. Like you look at old Picasso's, it does not look like the Picasso we think of. I mean, he's the guy with the, the quote, you know, great artist copy, you know, or good artist copy, great artist steal. And and I think if like there's that YouTube video, everything's a remix. Like any director, like you, you watch a Tarantino movie. Oh, wait, wait a second, that that shot you you copied from this director in you know 1954. Does he? That, that's we're just neural nets ourselves, right? So I I think you can make the like the programmatic industrial scale training, but in some ways, like if I if I go and spend every day going to the the Met and I want to be an aspiring artist and I just sit there and I look at you know, the, the paintings isn't, isn't that training set? Like I, I well, but,
2: like that, that argument doesn't hold water, but it just sounds scary because it's computers. I mean, the counter argument to that though, is if it can be measured, it will be measured, right? Like why does attribution exist? I know I'm talking my own bag here, but why does attribution exist in the digital world and not in the physical world? Cause there's no way to tell who saw the billboard, right? You can't tell who actually saw the billboard. And so you, you couldn't, you couldn't actually credit that advertising with any actual sales credit on the internet. You can sort of string it together. Right. And in AI training, you can string it together. Like, I don't know enough about the AI i understand that this is possible, but what Mark just said, can you actually take like the thousand leading weights or the, the thousand leading samples that led to this art? You could actually answer that question. Right. And you can't answer what did Picasso see
4: and th- that could change the economics of it slightly. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I actually think as we're talking here, I kind of, now you, you guys kind of have me hoping that basically all copyrighted material is going to be excluded from the training sets. <laughs> I, I think I'd, I think I'd, I think I'd, I think I'd rather live in the world in which it's it's trained by the Wild West,
3: Google, but for only for pre nineteen twenty three material.
4: Yeah, well, and anything and anything more recent, it's not you know it's not it's not it's not owned by the man. Okay, now I'm going to start lobbying. I'm going to start lobbying for copyright enforcement on, uh, on AI. This, is, this has been very productive for me today, so thank you.
1: Well, it is interesting. I mean, Peter Thiel famously said that, um, you know, crypto is libertarian, AI is, is communist, but there are worlds in which maybe, um, you know, there's more, cent- like, crypto is used for more centralizing purposes. And there, there's a world in which where um, AI is used for maybe more decentralizing purposes as well.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, if if the I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate version of this, right, would be if these if the if these algorithms get pro- tractable to the point, you know, the, if this if the work happening on like small data sets and 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 um, you know, less processing power, right? If you if you can run fully modern, fully competitive, you know, AI training and, and execution on a local device, you know, then we're in a yeah, then we're in a very different world. We're in a you know, we're we're in the anti, we're in the anti Orwell world for sure, which is you know, I think would be fantastic.
3: Yeah, I don't know where I saw it. Maybe it was one of those tweets that have been flying around related to AI. I think the next generation of the M2 chips apparently have a lot more integration with the the machine learning stack. And like I'm this way, outside my lane. But the, the point being that designed, given that Apple actually already does a lot of this on your, your local device, like computational photography and all that, like the more that can actually start to happen on a laptop, that, that's actually pretty... I, that's the world I want to live in. Like, I don't want to have to send everything up to the cloud. Like, you know, use it when you need to. But um, the more the more you can do on device, the better. It feels very American to me, right? Like constitutional uh, amendment protections and things like
4: that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a really so. Yeah, Apple. Yeah, look. I mean, you've got you know what is pre- probably the preeminent um, you know kind of technology company of our era that has fully dedicated itself to not doing cloud based AI. Fully, you know, explicitly said that AI runs on the device. Um, and, you know, t- today, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't talked to about this myself, but like, you know, today, this just, like, the gap, just consider this, right, the gap between ChatGPT and Siri, right, um, is large. Um, but like that company has already declared, right, um, uh, that, you know, it, it is determined to have AI running on the device. And so you've got an incredibly, you know, capable uh, set of people who are going to try to make Dan exactly what you said happen. Yeah, and then that's where the
3: stable diffusion comes in, right? Because if you actually start to build the the bazaar rather than the cathedral, then you have open source and it actually gets to, to snowball. Then, you know, Apple gets to benefit from that for free, right? Like, so So I, I think I, I'm just very hopeful that it's just not all big companies that, that control this stuff.
1: David Sachs has recently come out and said that he would like more regulation on, um, on uh sort of, I think, yeah, Google and, and Apple um, and, and Facebook, I think I, you more to help, you know, promote, like, uh, get rid of censorship. And I, when I asked him, like, hey, it, what about, like, previously there were just disrupt- disruptive technologies that ended monopolies. He said, actually, no, the regulations at Microsoft might have actually hurt, hurt them enough that they could be disrupted. Do you think there is a world for regulations that help aid the the world we want to see here, or it's just too dangerous? even entertain it.
3: I'm deeply skeptical because I I think the second order consequences, um, you know, you think you're doing one thing and then you, you set off another thing and I think generally it creates regulatory capture. That said, if you could be really targeted like scalpel level and go in And I think that there was, I actually don't know the names of the bills. Like one was the Open Markets Act or something. And there were like competing visions for the future that just died. It didn't make it the omnibus bill. So next Congress might pick it up. But I I think like, so I don't want to come off gross as an Apple stand because I actually, you know, I'm I'm deeply skeptical of all these big companies. But I think the the interesting thing is like, okay, so you want open app stores on, on Apple. Okay, so now I'm going to spend all my time doing tech support for my parents, like when they have malware, like going back to like the Windows era of just like this, just awful environment. And whereas uh, with a phone, like you never have to worry about that. And the moment you say, okay, you can have alternative app stores, you know, every other company's going to be like, great. Well, in order to get our software, which for the average person, like I want to use X or Y app, uh, they're going to install that third party app store, which is going to have a very different profile from whether it's. Privacy or security or and, and all that, and so I'm sympathetic to the argument that they should they, they put up time and energy to build these devices and and there are two right it's not like there's just one, but at the same time like we're clearly held back from an innovation standpoint by this duopoly and um, you know you can see this in in crypto just as a specific example like nfts you can think there's the stupid, but the reality is the innovation in that space is held back specifically because Apple has decided that this is uh, something that falls under their 30% tax, which obviously if you understand what an NFT is, like it's just not gonna work like that. And so I, I don't have a good answer other than, I, I think it's extremely difficult to thread the needle here of, of not like creating a worse world in terms of security, privacy, all, all the things that I think that the, specifically Apple does really well today in the current environment while at the same time allowing companies to, to innovate. Now, obviously, Apple could just change the rules themselves. And, and maybe that's actually the best solution is we put enough pressure at the congressional level that they're willing to pack, pack off. And there's this, um, the, the European Union thing that that might kick into effect, I think, next year. And the rumor is that Apple might just do it in, in Europe and, and TBD on what the definition of these, these third-party apps or sideloading or whatever it will be. But maybe they just kind of say, okay, we're gonna do it globally. Like we, we don't wanna have two different versions of the software in, in, in the different countries. That said, they, they already have a different version of the software in China, right? It doesn't have the Taiwan emoji. you know, change the airdrop filter based on the protests. So, so they're definitely capable of, of running different versions of the software in different countries based on, on local laws. But uh, I, I'd, I'd hate to see a blunt instrument when uh, something like a scalpel or, or even better public pressure would get them to actually voluntarily change.
4: Yeah, there's also um, just to put pre- you alluded to it, but there's a practical issue involved with legislation. Like, so it's sort of, you know, the logic chain of, I, I want to solve a problem, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> full logic. I want to solve a problem, therefore I want legislation. Now I have two problems, um, <laughs> right? So um, there, there's just a real a practical issue with legislation as an answer to problems right now, which is the legislature. And we just, we literally just saw this play out this week with the, the, the new omnibus bill that, <laughs> that uh that, that, elon, that elon is kind of shining a flashlight on today but um you know look the the the, the let just mechanically it's not a political observation it's a mechanical observation it's actually true across across the two parties mechanically the legislative process in this country does not work the way that it used to um the, like the the whole thing the whole bill becomes a law you know video that we probably all saw when we were kids like that doesn't happen now like that, that 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 era is over people do not bring legislation to the floor of the house and the senate they don't debate it they don't have a vote like that like that doesn't happen anymore Right. Instead, what happens is basically 11 months of nothing and then everything is loaded into this one big bill that pops up the week before Christmas. And then, you know, it's and then it and then, you know, they vote on it 12 hours later and nobody reads it. And, you know, it passes and it passes because it funds everything. Um, and so the way legislation actually gets passed in this country in the modern era is it's, you know, the top two or four people uh, across, you know, the Congress and and, and uh, the Senate and the House, you know, basically decide on all the all the laws. Um And so, look, if if you if you can get those two or four people to sign up for your program, then, you know, you can get it done. And if you can't, you can't. Um, And then you just have to ask the question of like, okay, you know, like Dan said, like a push comes to shove. And you've got an activist movement that wants, you know, socially beneficial legislation and it goes up against entrenched interests. And then there's a big kind of shootout for who those two or four people are going to side with. (laughs) It's it's probably not going to be the little guy. Um and so then you get the you yeah, you get the you get the second order consequences that Dan alluded to. So I, yeah. Yeah. The, the America we live in today,
1: harder to see. Right. Maybe the last question here. Um we just covered the three biggest stories of the year in tech, it it seems. You know, we covered uh Elon and Twitter, we covered uh covered SBF and FTX, and we covered um Chat GPT 3 and OpenAI. If if we're sitting here Again, uh, at the end of next year, and doing a roundup on um, you know the, the biggest stories. What's either a, a prediction you have, or a, or a company or trend to watch that you're going into 2023 and looking at and saying, "Wow, this you know there's a fork in the road here, and whatever happens is really going to influence the industry."
3: Well, my prediction is is a make or break year for Google. I I think the story that came out today is that Red Team Sundar is PMing the Google Search AI stuff. But based on what I've seen from just three point five, right? Chat GPT is GPT three point five. And what I've heard about four, if you play that out, and obviously they're buddy buddy with Microsoft and potential stable diffusion, like all, all of a sudden, now every company is gonna have access to something that can actually compete with Google. And also, by the way, something that is not naturally set up to show you three or five or six ads before you actually get to the result. I I think it could be, uh, if you don't take it seriously, um, a a monopoly that immediately starts to look very, very weak, because now people are going to be finding different ways to access the same information that they used to go to
2: Google. Again, kind of talking my own book a little bit, but I I do think it's the year, hopefully, of like consumer Web 3, potentially, right? Like. The the reality is that like token go up is not a law of nature, as it turns out. (laughs) And once that's true, then you actually have to build compelling products that people actually care about. And you actually have to acquire users and you have to monetize them. And you actually have to build a a business on the blockchain, which to date, I think a lot of crypto hasn't had to do. I mean, DeFi is obviously a different story, because there that's that's financially from the outset. But I'm talking about like gaming, NFT marketplaces, etc. And I think it is the year where I mean, certainly from where I'm sitting, you're seeing a lot of interest in, oh, how do we actually measure monetization? How do we measure retention? Which are questions that like, are just boring, you know, oh, growth team update questions inside the Facebook growth team inside web two are now being asked at web three in a way they weren't in the past. And so hopefully that that becomes a trend. As a lot of these companies won't be able to raise again, they can't launch a token and just they don't have free money to throw around to basically buy users anymore. They have to build viable and then you also have a lot of web two boomers like me moving into this space and saying, I know how to build a game. I know how to build a consumer experience, right? We're gonna build it in this other way. Right. And so to me, hopefully it, it does become the year of like consumer web three in some way. Um but People, I, Dan's been around in crypto longer than I have. He's probably heard this like every year for the past six years.
3: Yeah, look, I think the, the macroeconomic environment that's just outside of crypto as well, it's kind of like weak, you know, weak times, or what, what, what's, the, what's the weak times strong <laughs> men thing? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, think this is gonna be the most extreme mm-hmm. of all of them. And so there's right. gonna really be a, a flushing out of the weak in, in, in the crypto world. And, and so the, the remaining ones are gonna have to actually build things that are useful.
4: Yeah, I'd argue, um, basically, I think all three topics we discussed are just going to greatly intensify. Like, I, I think we're still in the preamble phase of these kind of big, <laughs> these really big fights. Um, and so, like, in crypto world, like, look, you know, the, 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 there, there are a lot more shadowy international entities that, you know, um, you could say look a little bit like FTX. Um, and so, like, you know, that, that's going to intensify further. Um, uh, then you've got, um, you know, the AI wars, like, are just getting started. Um, like the AI is just getting started, you know, kind of gathering steam, but things are going to get, I think, both amazing, profound, and, and, and a lot of, a lot of issues are going to really get intense. Um, yeah. And then look the social media wars and, and, um, you know, the speech wars and the control, all these control questions we're talking about. Like, yeah, I, I think we're just at the very beginning. Um, and, you know, and we're, we're learning things like, you know, just even the stuff that, that, that is being published in the Twitter files, like we're learning things about kind of what's been happening behind the curtain, uh, for the last decade. And we're going to learn a lot more about that, I think in the next year. And then I think the, the, the fight both, you know, for people who want to maintain control of these platforms and people who want to open them up, um, going to get much more intense
1: even than it is today. Well, if the last few weeks or, you know, last two months are any indication, it's going to be very entertaining, uh, to say the least.
4: Can I make a word about the the halfway point, Eric? Can I make an editorial? Um, Please, sidebar. Yes. Yeah. So um, I, I I love this. This is great. Um, total viewership for this is going to be very small. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs>
4: but maybe we do it with like more topical and um, sure. you know kind of attention grabbing topics. Um, um,
1: so guys, is SBF going to kill himself or what, what's, gonna, <laughs> what, what's 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 going to happen? <laughs> so Mark, I, I, I want to start this podcast by. Uh, introducing the SBF quote and having us unpack it a little bit. He he was a- explaining to a Vox reporter uh, that the ethics were were a dumb game we woke Westerners play. Uh, and um, I want you to use Joseph Henrich to help explain what is this dumb game or what what is this game and why is it uniquely a Western
4: thing? Well, do you uh, do you have the rest of the quote? Just. I don't to, don't finish it up um
1: it's a, a dumb game we woke westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths so people will like us yeah
4: so shibboleth right so, so shibboleth is kind of the key word in there it's kind of like you know the thing it's, it's like it's almost like the incantation right it's almost like it's like a he's, he's kind of saying we live in like a harry potter world where like if you say the words in the right order people do what you want um which you know for him historically worked out pretty well you know we'll see we'll see how well that works going forward um yeah, I mean, look, it's it's sort of you know it's very consistent. Um, you know, it's 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 sort of very consistent. I mean, you know, this this is an idea with very deep roots, and so right there's there's sort of this pro there's this pro sociality kind of aspect to it. Um, you know, which is we want other people to prove that, that they're a part of our tribe, um, and if they're part of our tribe, then therefore you know we should extend our protection to them. Um, you know, we want people to believe that they're altruistic. Um, you know, that they have our best interests at heart, and so therefore you know we'll do things for them um you know and then specifically politically we want you know them to We want, you know we want people to believe that we're on their political side so they'll kind of extend that you know that kind of that kind of umbrella protection to us as well um and so it, it is it, i mean it's uh, he's literally right right it's 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 these magic incantations where as long as you say the right words in the right order um you know everybody kind of nods and smiles and considers you friendly um you know it's it's uh, it's it's obviously it's a it's a it's a uh, you know a, a couple things well one is you know the thing that, gi- that gives it away is the cliches right and so there's this there's this great internet term right copy pasta um right which is like if, if everybody says the exact same things in the exact same ways right which is sort of what happens um then it's easy to just copy and paste uh, or it's easy to have your favorite chat you know ai you know generate it for you um and so you know there there is some declining signal uh, over time as it just kind of gets you know kind of increasingly um, obvious. Um, and then it's just incredibly prone to hacking, right? Um, uh, it, you know, it's just incredibly prone to people with bad intent, you know basically saying the words, not meaning them. Um, you know there's there's always this question of whether you can ever tell anybody's lying by looking at them, and it actually turns out I think to be fairly difficult. Um, and so there's this hack where a lot of people with you know bad intent, um, you know, will do this. and you know we I don't know, we seem to love it. like it, it seems to be far more important to us uh, as a species uh, to fall for this than it does to try to really uh, be just you know discriminatory and try to figure out who's actually you know saying what they believe. But but this going back to the weird Henrik thing, which we haven't defined,
2: and I don't know if our like as yet unformed audience is like, smart enough to know what it is without us like telling it. But it's this book by by Joe Henrik. And the whole point is like Western educated industrialized rich and what's the D again? Democratic. Democratic. Um and one of the unique things about Weird is basically Northern it's basically Northern European Protestant culture, right? Is what it is, right? Which has been exported through the Anglo Saxon channel in a huge way. And one of the Novel things about weird is that it's willing to confer dignity to strangers, right? Like the fact that, which is fairly unusual, like we're so used to it, like fish and water, we don't see it. But the thought that we meet a total stranger in a high trust society and are willing to like share a parking spot or a public place or pay taxes for their welfare or whatever is kind of novel. Historically, that's not been the case, right? Although obviously the, the model is hugely successful. And so in these weird societies, The ability to fake earnestness gets you a long way because earnestness gets you a lot in a low trust, cynical society. It doesn't get you much of anything. You look kind of like a fool, or to use the Israeli phrase, a friar, right? Like literally the chump, right? And nobody wants to be the chump. Um, But yeah, like that—that—that grift kind of only works in a weird society to some degree.
4: Yeah, and I think you you could—you could—you know, take it even a step further, right? It's sort of a—it's an artifact of Christianity, right? Specifically, right? Run through that. Ah, yes, my favorite topic. Yes, (laughs) right, exactly, right. So Antonio, we'll we'll uh, we'll talk at length about this, but. yeah, the, it, you know, it's basically, it's like, you know, the, the the foundation here is, right, Christianity was the first religion where the religion was decoupled from the concept of a people, right, which is right. to say decoupled from the concept of, like, a tribe or an ethnicity, right? Um, and so Christianity was the first religion, um, it, you know, where you could just, you could basically just say, I'm a Christian, um, as long as you say that, and, you know, the presumption is, again, that you believe it, but as long as you say that, like, you're, you know, you're kind of in that, you're in that tribe, and that's sort of an abstracted level of tribalism above the sort of normal ethnic, uh, you know, sort of foundation, uh, historical foundations of tribalism. Um, and so it's this, it's this, yes, it's this, it's this intrinsically sort of Christian, Christian, Christianized, Westernized, you know, point of view, which, as Antonio says, has been, you know, proselytized all over the world. You know, whether it transmits through to every other culture uh, and every other kind of people is always, you know, a bit of an open question. And
2: just to highlight that point, because I think it's such a strange conclusion. Again, you don't quite see it because we're also, you know, my I wouldn't say mired, marinated in liberalism that we kind of don't understand how you would couple religion. To ethnicity, but like Tom Holland, who I think we all like, he wrote this book, um, Imperium, was it? Uh, about Dominion. 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 And he he mentioned in his interview, so you realize the Christians invented the term Judaism, right? That they they invented the term that referred to, oh, the the, the nature of this belief that responds to the Jewish people. Before that, right, the, the the Jews were an ethnostate which belonged to a polity, which belonged to a certain monarchy, which was a certain order, and that's it. They thought that there would be French citizens that happened to be Jewish, right? And, and it took centuries to get there, by the way, even in the Christian world, right? It took Jewish emancipation to get there. And in fact, the Jews kind of fell for it. A lot of reformed Judaism was the thought, you know what, we can't actually abstract away Judaism from the fact that I'm a citizen of Germany and France. That didn't quite work out in the 20th century so well as an ideology, but by and large, that was the, that was the Christian mindset.
3: I think, I think what Colin refers to Christianity as a cult, uh, something about like the execution of an obscure criminal and, and, and we're all we're all swimming in it today.
2: Yeah. Well, Mark, let, let's go full Nietzsche, because I know I know you, you you're you're a fan of Nietzsche, as am I. Um, and I, he's responsible for one of the biggest criticisms of Christianity. And I think one of the interesting things about Christianity and Tom Holland gets into this as well, although he doesn't hate it nearly as much as Nietzsche does the elevation of the victim. Right. The thought that the divine took human form. And in fact, we elevate and revere the ugly, the oppressed, the ill, and not the wealthy, the powerful, the beautiful. Which, of course, every culture before Christianity worshipped, and certainly the Romans did. It's a strange. Inver- when you think about it, you, go, you walk into a church, and what is hanging on the wall? Literally, this image of a criminal getting tortured to death. Right, and that—that that is the figure of Godhead. That's that's very unique and strange. We've gotten ourselves used to it because we all are weird people, right? In the in the academic sense, but it it is odd when you think about it.
4: Yes, all right. So what Nietzsche says, right, is that basically in the pre-Christian, in pre-Christian morality, and it was even so, you know, to, to extend it further, pre-Jewish morality, um, you know, sort of Judeo-Christian morality, uh, in, you know, in the original world, in the ancient world, um, you know, basically the, the, the concepts of strong and weak were the same as the concepts of good and bad. Like they map that way. And so strong was good, weak was bad. And you kind of put yourself in the mindset of like, you know, very, you know, early peoples living under very harsh conditions. You know, it kind of makes sense if you if you kind of think about what that really would have been like. It's like, OK, what matters is survival. Um, OK, what you know, what matters for survival is being strong. OK, so therefore that which is strong is good. You know, what 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 is the thing that gets you killed being weak? Therefore, anything that's weak is bad. Right. And so there was this there was this straight mapping of strength to goodness and, and, and weakness to uh, to, you know, to moral badness. You know, Nietzsche calls this, you know, master morality, right? Uh, you know, carrying forward the, you know, the sort of morality of the master in a, in a, in a master slave relationship or, you know, more generally sort of a strong weak, uh, you know, relationship. Um, right. And then Christianity is the first religion that flips that um, on its head. Um, you know, Judeo Christianity maybe in combination flips that on its head and, and Christianity is the full realization of that. And uh, basically says no. Actually, we venerate the weak, and of course that that itself was a pro social a pro social hack, right? Um, and because it's just on the numbers, right? Just on the numbers, there are a lot more you know there are a lot more slaves you know than there are masters historically, right? Um, there are a lot more weak people than there are strong people, you know. There are a lot more downtrodden people than there are people on top, you know, in in any in any you know in in any hierarchy. Um, and so therefore, Christianity kind of came up with this like very brilliant kind of strategic political <laughs> breakthrough, which was here's how we get the most people on our side. Um, somebody I forget who called for that reason called Christianity the, the final religion. Right. It's it's like Christ- the theory goes like Christianity is the final religion. It's the last religion that can actually hit the mainstream um, because it's the it's the one that basically has numbers on its side. Like it's the one where you're the strongest if you're the part of the you know basically largest possible coalition of the week. Um, and, you know, arguably that and sort of secularized versions of that are, you know, the world that we live in.
2: I've often joked that Christianity is Judaism with product market fit and a growth team. Right. And like, clearly, St. Paul was the greatest product marketer in like human history. And then he took this weird he took like Linux and Unix, which never became the desktop, and he turned it into like Mac OS 10 somehow. And he made it the salable thing that actually like everyone could actually engage by getting rid of the weirdest part of Judaism and then preserving the most interesting and appealing parts of it and actually generalizing it. I, I might get canceled by Jews now, but yeah, anyway, go ahead. Sorry, go. go no, ahead. All, all I, was <laughs> say is,
3: I think I remember listening to Tom Holland talk about his like inspiration for the book, and obviously he's a classicist, and he, he was talking about after years of just reading, uh, you know, the primary sources on, on Caesar killing a million Gauls and and, and Leonidas, just you know these these ubermensch and and you know no love for anything weak. It it felt very foreign. Living in modern liberalism, and and right. so that was actually what what got him because he he's not a religious writer at all, and so I think it, it's kind of an interesting lens for a book to be written about Christianity through a, a classicist eyes. And then the other one interesting about, about that book that kind of stuck with me was the the Persian influence on Christianity, which I had never heard about. Right, you'd always heard the Judaism and the Greeks, but the idea of the you know Darius and and kind of like good and evil light and dark and just kind of this like binary in group out group and, and you're either with the strong and us or you're against us uh as, as kind of being a, a motif that kind of get woven into early christianity
2: so one thing you mentioned mark is that christianity is the final religion i mean in am referring back again to my poor request interview of tom holland from like two years ago he also mentioned you know talking about things like what we see in the world today with social justice wokeness, whatever you want to call it right in tom holland's definition that is almost the inevitable outcome of christianity right like if you Pursue injustice in the downtrodden long enough, you get to the point where it's almost Zeno's paradox of injustice. You're, you're spending more and more effort to go after, you know, f- more cases of injustice. And uh, yeah, I mean, what does that mean then? Is this is this it then? I mean, this might segue into the end of history thing we're talking about, but I'm curious what happens next if it is the, the final religion
4: yeah so you know so Nietzsche kind of called this early, right? So Nietzsche was writing around the same time that you know Darwin, you know Darwin's theories of natural selection were starting to become you know kind of you know essentially proven and, and dominant in terms of science. And so Nietzsche kind of abstracted that through to society uh, and 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 you know, and this sort of famous statement was, you know, God is dead, you know we've killed God and something like we'll never wash the blood off our hands. Um, uh, and and you know basically right his 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 thesis basically was um, the way I read it is in an increasingly scientific world, right in a world where you believe in science and in a world where you believe in specifically natural selection and you know the evolution um you know the, the supernatural aspects of a religion like christianity kind of fade away they're just no longer you know plausible um and and then he he, he extrapolated from that to be okay therefore the value system of christianity will also fade away um and then you know we, we will basically spend the 20th century trying to invent new post-christian ideologies that will turn out to be you know absolute catastrophes <laughs> and then, you know, sure enough, you know, along comes communism, um, you know, and drops a hundred million bodies and along comes Nazism and fascism, which drops a hundred million bodies. And, you know, he, he, he kind of was right about that. Um, you know, fortunately, right. Communism in, in its full form is defeated. Nazism and it's, you know, fascism in its full form is defeated. And so, you know, what, what I think he would say and what, what, what Tom Holland says today, uh, right. Is that we, 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 live, we, we still live basically in a Christian, a Judeo-Christian or a Christian society. Yeah. We still, we live in a, we live in a secularized Christian society, um, Somebody made the point, it's like, um, you know, it's like everybody, it's like, it's, you know, everybody on their deathbed, like, praise to God, but like, if the Pope, like, cuts his foot really badly on his like, fancy slippers, he goes to the hospital, right? Like, <laughs> we're, we're all kind of in this, like, weird, like, you know, we're sort of Christian, we're sort of not Christian, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of this, this sort of, uh, right, you know, sort of rationalist version of, of, of underlying idea, or, you know, secular humanism kind of version of Christianity. Um, but, you know, to Holland's point, like it, it's still it's, it's still the Christian ethos, right? And, and so it basically, it's still it's still it's the secularized version. We live in a world characterized by the secularized version of Christianity. We live in a world, therefore, characterized by what Nietzsche called slave morality, which is carrying forward the morality of the slave and the weak, um, you know, into into uh, into our daily lives. You know, even though we are, you know, at least you know presumably, you know, these days far from either being slaves or from from being weak in the historical sense. Um, and so, you know, we, we care, we carry basically weakness forward as our, as our greatest uh, moral virtue. And then to your point, like we just, we keep firing on that impulse. Right. And so we keep basically stretching. It's like, okay, I can't claim to be weak anymore cause I don't have enough food. I can't claim to be weak anymore cause I'm getting beaten by my, you know, my, my boss. I can't claim to be weak anymore because, you know, we, you know, passed, you know, civil rights legislation and so forth and so on. And so therefore I need to figure out new ways to either claim to be weak or I need to figure out new ways to claim to speak on behalf of the weak. And 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 that's our, you know, obviously our, our dominant morality. Yeah, it's weird, because if you look at a lot of like online
2: debates, I mean, I, I've had this debate with Rod Dreher, and it's weird if you look at like everyone is suffused with Christ as a central moral narrative to the West. And if you look at the actual debates, they're not debating the moral narrative. They're debating who to cast as Christ. <laughs> That's the debate. Who do we actually put on the cross? And whether it be a person of this category or in the case of Rod Dreher, who wrote a book about the priests under the Soviet Union, who obviously did suffer. Like at the end of the day, Rod Dreher and the woke left that he despises and rails against don't really disagree
4: on the script. They just disagree on the casting to that script. That's the debate. Um, and we'll basically, from that, right, we'll, we'll basically, we'll continue to come up with Christ-like victims. Like, we, we as a right. society will continue to generate martyrs. Uh, we will, we will continue. We will continue to have sort of mass, you know, kind of sociological, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, <laughs> phenomena, <laughs> breakdowns, whatever, right, around martyrs. Um, you know, we we will continue to have these these sort of mass, you know, kind of elevated, you know, movements around around martyrdom, um, and, and basically that that will repeat over and over and over and over again because we're basically playing out that Christ narrative. Um, you know, just because we because we, we quite literally don't know what else to do.
3: And, and do we think that there are alternative ideologies today that are competing for that? Or is it everything just some brand of Christianity, whether it's secular or religious?
4: Well, so this goes to the weird, you know, this this goes to the weird thesis, right? Which basically, just to repeat, is Western, you know, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And, and that sort of bundle of cultural characteristics kind of carries with it the morality that we're, you know, that we're talking about. And so then you've kind of got this question of like, okay you know, much of the world today is weird. Like, you know, much of the world is, is, you know, you know, has been kind of penetrated or, you know, colonized by this morality. Not yet all of it, but like, you know, American soft power, mass media, right? You know, and, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, there were missionaries, right? That would go out and try to convert people to the, you know, to the weird morality of that time. You know, today we have social media, you know, we have movies, right? We have music, you know, we have these, you know, amazing, you know, public figures whose voices get broadcast all around the world. And so, you know, the, the proselytizing impulse of of Christianity is, you know, seems to me to be alive and well, um, and you know is 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 being spread as aggressively as possible by sort of the modern version of missionaries. So, like, m- my bet would, I mean, my bet would be that you know we kind of this, this kind of takes the whole world, you know, lots of people from other cultures and speaking on behalf have other cultures tell me that's naive and that won't happen. But uh,
3: you know, I could, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well,
4: well, that I believe in, but I, I can cite one exception to the
2: rule of everyone becoming. There's one country broadly in the Western sphere that birth rates are still solid, has moved to the right, and has a solid sense of uh, purpose. And I have to say, there's one distinguishing characteristic about that about that country is that they stop reading the Bible at a certain point. And um, I'm talking about Israel, of course. Um, I'm 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 the representative of the global Jewish conspiracy, I think. Well, no, Eric is as well. Actually, you're part of yeah. the. We we both got. Have I you
3: actually converted yet, or like no? What, no, I have. I, I, no, so so it's, it's funny. the demarcation happened.
2: Yeah. Well. So. Um, right. I don't have control of the space laser yet. You get that later. Nor, nor do I have access to the nest thermometer that controls the weather. That's also like a later step. I actually. So it's it's an odd story. My rabbi. Well, I shouldn't name who it is. My rabbi switched synagogues. He didn't like SF <laughs> synagogues, so he went to a Texas synagogue. You can imagine what happened. And so now I got to go to Texas. He's
3: the, he's the Elon of rabbis.
2: He's the Elon of, of Rabbis. Yeah, basically, he's the Elon of Rabbis. Um, and so I have to go to Texas to go into the mikvah. I have, to, I have to get both circumcised and go into the mikvah. I'm not joking. Everyone can squirm at once now. Um, and that's the actual transition process. That's, that's, so that's, you,
1: you're, you're going to do it?
2: I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull the trigger. That's when I get that's when I can control the space laser. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry. But, but sorry. I started to throw everything for a loop. We're talking about 1K. Um, you got <laughs> like the acronym sure. wrong on the notes, Eric uh oh, what the circumcision thing yeah sorry anyhow i don't think you're supposed Good.
3: to talk about the notes
2: okay go- oh yeah the notes don't exist what sorry this is all this yeah sorry um, oh,
3: i got it yeah yeah one k hey, are even i mean the lenny man that that's uh that's a <laughs> point for antonio anyways we,
2: we have a bit of a history there i felt bad about that um for those who don't understand he was plagiarizing my sub stack and i complained and i don't know where he is now but I think he is right. Can you define what it is, Eric? What the what
1: the, the one thousand are? year American empire? Is that it? Yeah. No, one KYAE. I think is what it is. One KYE. Um, yeah. And so, what makes like to Dan's question? Like, well, I guess to zoom out, it's interesting. I read a op-ed uh, in the New York Times by Michelle Goldberg lamenting that TV shows as of late don't have enough politics in them um basically (laughs) basically okay (laughs) has she watched (laughs) White lotus that's what she's referring to she's like um you know the 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 misogynistic guys don't get like they end up fine Mm. um and Mm -hmm. you know mark went on this uh podcast richard hania talking about tv shows and and mark was saying that there aren't any like nietzschean heroes in 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 tv shows like you're, you're only allowed to have certain morality tales but perhaps perhaps it's diversifying.
4: So, uh, yeah. So should we start with, should we start with that and then come back to 1KYE? Yes. Yeah. So, so, so basically, yeah. So, so, okay. So (laughs) the dominant morality of the time is, you know, is, 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 slave morality, right. Um, uh, Which, which, which which we talked about. And so like every story basically that wants to get told is kind of the, you know, the the victim story and, you know, and, and at some point the victim stories get old, like at some point, especially as a form of entertainment, like the victim stories are, you know, sad and, you know, kind of you know, by the way you know there's whole sections of like you know pop literature that basically are these victim stories right every once in a while there'll be this be, you know there'll be some best selling author or something who has some life story of just like complete degradation and 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 shame and you know writes a best selling book and everybody feels terrible and then it turns out you know they made the whole thing up right um, and so you know th- you know there there is that kind of entertainment if you want it um. Uh. You know, there is. You know, kind of a, a a form of entertainment that's like much more fun to actually watch, which is more of a of a you know sort of a of a of a hero narrative. Um. You know, the 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 hero negative, the hero narrative, though, always you know kind of it runs the risk of coming across as cloying, right? And so it's like, okay, this is like a wonderful person doing wonderful things. Okay, at some point, that that's kind of dull. Um, and then, so, so, so that's led to the rise in the last, you know, 20 years or so on TV of the sort of anti-hero narrative, right? And so the, you know, the Tony Soprano, the Walter White, the Don Draper, um, you know, um, you know, all, all, all of these examples. And so it's like a guy who is, you know, or a woman who's kind of, you know, morally bad, but like really fun, interesting to watch, um, you know, doing like, you know, basically big and interesting things um and then there's 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 always this like conflict as you're watching the show which is like okay am i supposed to be identifying with this person am i supposed to be cheering for this person <laughs> and am, I, am i supposed to be you know condemning this person um and so uh you know it's like you know walter like breaking bad like walter white is like a great example like he's clearly the protagonist of the show it, you know he he is uh, you know obviously a, by modern morality standards a horrible person right doing horrible things in the world um you know but yet he's this dynamic driving force right trying to build a drug empire and you you kind of find yourself cheering him on um and so it's like okay well, what you know what what you know what what basically is is happening there and my argument basically is the 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 anti-hero is the version of the nietzschean superman um that we are allowed to have right so we are allowed to have the portrayal of somebody who is larger than life and dynamic and an empire builder and somebody who vanquishes his enemies right and somebody who does great things right um as long as that person is fundamentally bad by standards of our modern of our modern morality as long as they're doing something that in the end we we judge as net destructive what we're not allowed to have is the full version of the Nietzsche Superman doing something, you know, outstanding, right? So we're not allowed to have Napoleon-like figures, right? We're not allowed to have, you know, the building of the pyramids, right? We're not, we're not allowed to, we're not allowed to have, you know, Beethoven. We're not, we're not allowed to have the stories, or, or even, you know, even I mean, even or even, you know, even business builders. Like we're not allowed to have the story of the kind of person who like built the transcontinental railroad, right? Or the kind of person who built, you know, the, you know, the car industry, or like you know, any of those things. Like those narratives basically are just completely gone. Um, because they're so out of step with, with with our times and with our conception of morality. Basically, Top Gun was robbed at the Academy Awards, right? That's that's that's
2: one example. For example, well,
4: like, right. Every once in a while, you get a glimpse, right? You get you get a right. You get a glimpse of a world in which, right? You know, a hero like that would actually exist. Um. Right. Uh, now, now the full Nietzschean Superman is is even a step further beyond Top Gun, right? The full Nietzsche Nietzschean Superman. Uh, is somebody who is, you know, basically lives master morality fully, which basically says, I'm going to do the thing that I'm going to do, um, even if it runs, you know, right over a lot of our, you know, sort of modern Western conceptions of morality, like I'm going to accomplish something great, even if it's a terrible expense, but it is really going to be great. Like there really are going to be pyramids, right? Um, uh, You know, I really am going to take over the world um, uh, and, you know, rule it and, and rule it much better um and, and, the, and those, narr- those narratives are just gone like they you know the, the they just simply don't exist they, you know, they, and i regulate like from a cultural like they're too scary right they're just they're just they're absolutely frightening because if we rediscovered that kind of morality like it would it would upend our entire order would well, we, we, we even would,
3: think there would be anyone to write like high quality stuff for that at
4: this point i mean it's just not in vogue at all to yeah, tell that story right. well, yeah, it, it would require a nietzsche superman writer or ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it would require the it would, yes, the 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 unchained uh, version of Chet GPT could probably do it. The, ver- the version we have could definitely not do it, but the full the, the full version might be able to do it.
1: What's ironic is that three of the most, if not the most popular individuals on the planet, um, you know, kind of represent this to some degree. You know, uh, Trump, Kanye, and Elon certainly the opposite of of slave morality and and perhaps. You know, very controversial for the reason you mentioned. They go against, you know, instinctive Mm -hmm. modes of morality.
4: Yeah this this triple used to make this triple used to be uh, easier to use. Um, <laughs> 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 it's gotten somewhat more difficult in recent months. Yeah. Um you know I don't look, I, I think you can map Elon into this too. Uh, you know so just focus on him for a second like you know and, and, you know and I think he generates the kind of reaction that you'd expect given the the morality framework that we've been talking about which is he's he's a guy just like look I'm just I don't care what people say I'm just going to like build I'm going to build a new car company. I mean I know it's, you know everybody says it's impossible to build a new car company. Um, and on top of that, I'm going to build, you know, the ultimate robot, you know, electric, you know, self-driving car. Um, and I don't care anybody's. I'm just going to do it. Um, you know, and then he says, you know, the same thing for rockets. And now he says, you know, the same thing for Twitter and, you know, three other things. Um, and so, you know, yeah, he's, he's like the, you know, he's, he's the modern version, um, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, he's the closest we can get to this. Now, you know, it is significant, like from a, from a, if you look at it through this kind of moral lens. You know, it is significant that he's, that he himself, right, still, you know, kind of, uh, you know, and and by the way, I, I believe that he believes this, so I'm not questioning him, but, um, you know, he, he kind of, he, he, he dresses it in a, in a, in the, in the, in the sort of, you know, Christianized slave morality, you know, kind of ethos, right? So why, why, why do Tesla, well, because, you know, climate change, right? Um, and so he, he you know, he's, he's got sort of that still kind of underlying appeal to kind of modern, you know, Christianity, secularized Christianity, progressivism, our current, you know, kind of civil re- religion. Um, you know, but look, it you know, it, there was there was some period of time where that kind of got him off the hook maybe a little bit from people who otherwise would have criticized him. It seems like that does not a buffer against people criticizing him at this point. Um and you know, we're we're you know we're we're seeing maybe a more pure version of the Nietzsche and Superman today um than, than we've seen in quite a while.
2: I, I mean part of the deal with Twitter can we discuss Burnham in this podcast or is Burnham yeah. off limits? Yeah. yeah. Um I, we, I
4: had that we, we, we are going to take our total number of viewers from two down to zero at some
3: point. We want to talk ancient city after.
2: Um, you know, I, I had this viral tweet thread, which, which got quoted in uh, Kevin Russo's thing about, which I didn't even read. And by the way, I didn't even know I was quoted. That's how, that's how upstream we are of the New York times that only somebody mentioned that I got quoted that I like, Oh, I guess so. I didn't, I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. Um, but, uh, Basically, it was framing the whole Elon thing in like Burnham's managerial elite book, which I think was on your best books to read, Mark, right? I think you, that was on your list. Um, it's worth noting Burnham was a former Trotskyite who went conservative somewhere in there. And he wrote this interesting book, which, uh, the whole, the whole point is about the rise of the PMC, which is a professional managerial class. Lash wrote about it. Michael Linds has written about it. It's not a new concept, but I sort of framed the whole Elon thing as the, the weird thing about the Burnham thesis, right? Is that, Traditionally under Marxism or like bourgeois capitalism, the the owners and the bourgeois, the enemy of the people, were the same person, right? But the decoupling that's happened is that capital and the PMC are not necessarily the same people with the same interests, right? It's why you can see sort of weird... So, you know, woke revolts at companies against management. And it's but, you know, it's not actually somebody working in a coal mine. Right. It's somebody who's like the middle management at these companies who demands a different political agenda than the founding class would actually want. I think Coinbase is another good example in which Brian Armstrong just said, well, uh, we're just not going to we're just not going to discuss this at work. And if you don't like it, there's the door. Um, and Elon has basically come in and basically fired a lot of the PMC. And I, I think he he put into very sharp relief the fact that the Elons of the world and their interests are not necessarily those of the L5 engineer or product manager who works for him, right? Um, Let alone like your...
3: George Hotz showing up for a month and, and <laughs> like it would just like that, that is, is incompatible with the PMC right. operating procedures, you know, process right. procedures. Right.
4: right. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's worth noting like how much we live in the world that Burnham described the sort of PMC, this managerial class, right? So right. take, you know, take a, take a really big company. You know, maybe a big search engine company starts with a G. You know, the Burnham thesis, right, is, you know, ownership is dispersed, right? And so, you know, who owns Google? The answer is, you know, a million people, including probably, you know, all of us in some accounts somewhere, you know, retirement accounts, 401ks, index funds. You know, by the way, you know, Google still has the, you know, nominal founder control, although, you know, in practice, that doesn't seem to really factor factor in much anymore. Those guys seem pretty pretty tuned out. So... So it's, it's it's become more like a you know more like a more like a normal company, and so so ownership is dispersed, and then and then right there's a management class, a PMC managerial class at Google, of uh, you know basically hired executives um, who run who run the company on and and, and it's a it's, this is a classic Burnham formulation of you've got a dispersed base of owners, um, and then you've got a concentrated group of managers, um, and so of course the managers are dominant right over the owners, which is the reverse of of, of what you would think from from the economics um and so you've got this PMC managerial class of managers at Google you also there you also however this is very important you also have that same class of shareholders right so you have you know Larry Fink is kind of the living embodiment of this but there are many others you you've got these large scale um you know asset management firms that aggregate up lots of individual shareholders and then those asset management firms like BlackRock and others right are controlled by a certain class of man- a certain class of again manager um, and that manager basically has the ability to speak, you know, uh, in terms of policy on, on behalf of this, this distributed base of owners. Um, and so you, you've got this, it, the, the modern kind of force of having a company is you've got basically the PMC in charge at the manager, at the manager level of the company, but also at the shareholder level. Right. So you've actually got this like sandwich um, of, 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 of managerialism, sort of abstracted managerialism and therefore principal agent problems um, you know, kind of running, running these companies. And so, and th- and that's why these companies kind of, you know, do, do, do all the things um, that they do, you know, to, to your point, like Elon is the throwback, like in, in, in Bernard Elon is the throwback. He's the, he's the throwback to the pre-managerial, what, what Burnham would call the, the bourgeois capitalist, which is to say the owner who actually runs the company. And, you know, with Twitter, that's like definitely the case. Like <laughs> he literally owns the company. It's, it's just him. Um, you know, there are some minority shareholders, including us, but like, you know, he's in charge, um, you know, his name is, you know, on the door. Um, and he's in there and he's running it and he just like, you know, tells people what to do and like, there's no board and there's no, none of this other stuff. Like, it's just like the guy in charge. Um, and, and by the way, the guy in charge model is basically how like the entire world up until like, you know, 1940 or whatever was built. It's it's how like the, you know, the railroads were built and it's how every, you know, basically countries were formed and cities were created and, you know, how kind of everything great in the world happened up until a certain point. It's less common today, but he, you know, he he is the best living embodiment of that. And that's why he has to go. By the way, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, so he's, he's, an, he's an insult to the system. That's right. He's an insult to the system, right? And, and and anybody who's in the managerial class, right? The theory goes basically looks at him and says, you know, this is the this is the alien element. Like that, this is the thing that we were supposed to replace. This is the thing. You know, this is the thing. If 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 these people ever rose up again and came at us, they would just reassert control of everything, and we would be out of the street. Uh, right. Um, and so, yeah, that the, 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 this can't happen. We, we, we cannot have the Nietzschean Superman bourgeois capitalist operating in our society. Uh, we simply can't tolerate it. Now I, I would argue we need it. Right. Um, and I would argue, you know, Elon's an example, but there are many other examples in the tech industry of, of sort of, uh, you know, versions of, you know, people who are like that or aspire, aspire to be like that. You know, we, we need them to exist because without Elon, we don't get Tesla without Elon, we don't get SpaceX without, you know, the kind of founders that, you know, that we work with, you know, we, don't, you, we, don't, you don't get all the new inventions. Um, you know, that actually power things forward, right? The, the managerial class does not invent new things. Like they they manage, <laughs> you know, they don't create. Um, and so if we ever want anything new ever again, it has to be this model where somebody basically adopts this, you know, older, you know, method of operating and says, look, I'm in charge. I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell people what to do. I'm going to make the decisions. I'm going to drive it forward. We're not going to have committees and, you know, all these, you know, all, all, all these other, you know, kind of super, superfluous structures. We're just going to do the work. And we're going to have a command and control hierarchy, um, and so so we we do need these people to kind of either come back, right, or you know we need them to appear again. Um, you know, there is something in human nature. A certain number of people are born each generation that want to do something great, um, and so there is something in human nature where these people do keep showing up. Um, but um, you know, I would argue we, we we need more of them, and then I, I would argue we need to encourage them more uh, as they appear.
1: So if Burnham helps explain the managerial economy. Um, and, uh, you know, Henrik helps explain why, um, you know, we're going to weirdify the world or why the rest of the world is going to become, you know, this is where Fukuyama comes in more liberal democratic, um, you know, observers over the past decade or a couple decades have remarked that, um, maybe the, some parts of the world don't want to become as weird as, as we might've thought, or, or maybe it's, it's harder for them to complete that transition as, as we would have thought. And this gets back to one KYE. Is that, is that just a, Matter of time, or, or, or do some cult- countries or cultures actually have cultural immunity to to weird? And what determines, you know, who who wins that battle between weird and kind of a, a host host culture?
2: I think part of what is attractive about weird, pe- people want the goodies that weird bring, right? They want the wealth, they want the con- the consumerist society. I think the other aspects of weird, which is like free speech rights, like the sort of elevated. Uh, you know, ethereal rights encoded in the Constitution. Like, I think we flatter ourselves thinking that the entire world wants to live in an American-style democratic republic. (laughs) Like, I I don't think that's actually true. Um, I I think they want a lot of freedom. I think they want the consumption. I think they want the wealth. I I don't know if, if Americans even want American-style democracy anymore, right? It's it's a hard democracy is hard, right? You have to put up, you have to listen to other people who disagree with you. You have to give equal dignity to everybody, right? It violates so many formative narratives in in that are part of many people's sort of inherent constitutions. I I, I don't know. I, I think. I think weirdness is a hard sell. And if you look, I mean, the bare case on the U.S. imposing liberalism on the world is that it utterly failed in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. Right. It was a total failure. Like how many how much weird residue is there left in those countries now that the United States is left? I would say probably not much. Um, and in fact, the recent news out of Afghanistan is they just banned women in schools, for example, right? That was the legacy of the American
1: occupation. Or well, that's because they cut the diversity initiatives. Uh, they, they yeah. kept... yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. They kept them.
2: Yeah, I guess. I'm. I'm. It sounds like the Taliban worm being on the DEI front.
1: Biden's well, <laughs> um, yeah. new plan, or whatever. The new plan just needs more, more, you know, money allocated there. Then Yeah. Anyhow.
3: Um, but, but, yeah. in, in, but I feel like in some ways, though, exposure to the Internet is the ultimate. Like if you, if you take the idea of books changing the way the brain works uh, in, in text and then you just put it in a piece of glass in front of you all the time and anyone in the world has that, uh, maybe outside of a country like China, full access to Wikipedia and everything else, uh, I think it's going to be a pretty levelizing force No, like in terms of it's just exporting the the 1-K-Y-A-E, as we'd say.
2: I mean, I think- Iran, Iran being a good example, by the way, right, where there's a lot of there's a mass movement now against their current political order, which for some reason is not getting a lot of play in the U.S., which I don't like. So I'm, I'm like name dropping it. But in Iran, you're, you're right. Right. The, the Internet is kind of infiltrating weird values in a way that the local power structure doesn't like.
4: Yeah. And I just friends of mine just got back from Saudi and they basically report like Saudi Arabia apparently is, from a social standpoint has been completely transformed in the last five years. And, you know, it's like men and women, you know, together in public, you know, who don't, you know, who aren't related. It's, you know, women driving and working and it's it's kind of all these Western, you know, kind of things all of a sudden kicking in, um, you know, under, under, under the, the, the new leadership. Um, the, the most interesting thing about the Afghanistan thing to me was, um, you know, obviously, you know, banning women from school or whatever is a throwback to the old, you know, kind of the old the old ways uh, of, you know, of, of the Taliban kind of pre pre 2001. Um, but there there is a big difference. <laughs> Taliban 2.0 um, in charge today. There is a big difference. Um, and it, it's not necessarily showing up in their behaviors, but it is visible, um, which is they all have phones now. Um, <laughs> right. To, you know, Dan, to your point, like. Taliban 2001. If you look at all the photos, like they're not carrying around cell phones. Um, if you look at the photos in 2021 when they came back in power, they've all got phones. Um, and there were there were a bunch of articles where you know the you know especially the younger Taliban members were interviewed about it, and it's like yeah I'm you know I'm fully signed up for this whole program, but by the way I've got my you know I'm following the you know the whatever the you know soccer and you know sports and music and like all the Western stuff on my um, on my phone. And so I I, th- I think that. The question with this, you know, the core question is, like, basically, do we get the kids, right? And so, you know, there's sort of like the older generation, you know, will not change. The sort of, you know, younger generation of adults is kind of, you know, a hinge generation that's kind of, you know, neither here nor there, maybe. And then, you know, somebody who's, you know, somebody who's five today, you know, living in a, even what we would consider to be a very repressive society. You know, if it turns out they do have access to a phone. Um, and so, therefore, they have access to Western culture. And so, therefore, they grow up with our, you know, our conception of culture and then, therefore, our conception of morality, you know, kind of coming through the screen. Um, you know, how, how long does it take for the broader culture to uh, to change, to conform to that?
3: Yeah, outside of a great wall of China, I feel like most of these countries just don't have the ability. And now, now,
4: Elon with
3: Starlink, Antonio, your favorite uh, <laughs> treat of all time, but you shake your fist to the sky. I mean, <laughs> yes, just 10 years from now, you have a phone that's potentially talking to a satellite. Good luck filtering that. And and I mean, you, you could talk all you want about like okay, what are the reasons for the fall of Soviet Union, but like the, the quip is blue jeans and, and western pop music, right? So like I think the the accelerant of these phones and, and if you do actually get to a satellite based internet, uh that just can happen for anybody, I think it's really hard to avoid it, even even in a country like China.
1: What does someone like our good friend um Balaji not appreciate about kind of American or, or, or weird influence and its ability to to penetrate or or permeate the rest of the world like if you if you were here what, what would his his argument against it be
2: against weird or for weird
1: against uh, against weird. weird he doesn't think it's that powerful hmm. or inevitable hmm.
2: i think that it induces a stasis that can't do anything right his constant quip is that the u.s can't build anymore or very few parts of the u.s can build anymore um i think he would probably claim that um
4: yeah, he would. Yeah, he would basically say, yeah, look at us. We're mired in politics. Um, you know, we're mired in stagnation. Um, you, know, we, we got, you know, we've got, you know, we've we've we have a system that somehow puts the worst people in our society in charge. Right. Um, <laughs> so some, some evidence for that. Um, and so, uh, you know, right. His, you know, his hero, who are his heroes? Like, you know, um, uh, Lee Kuan Yew right uh as an example right so um uh you know we we, we, you know what we we, you know properly run society would would prize excellence um and would prize you know education and would 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 prize achievement um and I, i don't know that he would use Nietzschean phrasing but he you know he would he would lean much harder into this kind of master morality um you know kind of thing and he would he would find you know he finds western society very um you know very lacking uh, and by the way, you know, he's, he's a good friend of all of ours and he's a super genius and yep. everybody should read his book. The, you know, the, the, the kind of biggest disagreement he and I always have is that, um, you know, his, his arguments on this are are precisely American, right? Like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Like he, he he has the you know what what is what is what is you know maybe the ultimate cultural hallmark of Americanism is its, it's self criticism, right? It's it's this you know constant self critical you know kind of thing about how terrible our society is and about how terrible our politics are and about how terrible our culture is and how terrible you know and how you know just like awful everything is. Uh, it's like the national sport, right? Uh, is to kind of attack ourselves like that. Um, and he is he is he is enthusiastically on board with the self criticism program. The, yeah. the one thing I would
3: quit uh, with biology on is our, our vaccines do do work, uh, <laughs> like it's. Uh, uh, yeah. But you no, know, I, I think. Um,
4: yeah, 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 ish. Yeah, I, look, <laughs> let's see. The... Let's see. Let's see. Let's see if we can get. Let's see if we can get Eric's uh, Eric's uh, YouTube show uh, banned. Uh, on the <laughs> first episode. <laughs> first episode. No, but I, I,
3: I think the biology is credit. Though what I like to say, biology and I disagree on a lot of things on this, especially when it, you know biology, Zihan, and I think he he offers an alternative on pretty much every point, and we've talked at you know a ton about this, at Eric. But I do think one one thing I give a lot of credit to biology is he actually has a, a differentiated point of view, and he actually put it down on paper and, and, and put it said, like, okay, this is actually what I believe in and and, and put it down. And so I think, um, do I agree whether that's going to happen or not? No, but it, it's worth everyone to read it and then come to their own opinion on it. And I think there's a lot of elements of the network state that are, are really interesting and influential what I'm doing day to day. So, like, I, I think um, on one, any one point in particular, we don't necessarily have to agree, but, like, I, I think his, his, his viewpoint is worthwhile. And, and oh, for what, sure.
2: I'm glad, I'm glad you named it by name, Dan. So we're talking about the network state, his book, which I reviewed, and it is also available online in this actually really nicely formatted website that you can keep on reading his new additions to it. Well, he's I, constantly,
3: he's, you know, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, it's like, like, let's not just ship this thing on a CD-ROM. It's like, you know, SAS.
2: Right, right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I positively re- reviewed the network state for, for Tablet Magazine. I, I thought it was good, right? And like, the biggest argument for the network state is that, we're living in it, right? Like the reality is we're already there. If you take the three or four neighborhoods in San Francisco or the three or four neighborhoods in LA and New York, like if it existed right now with actual borders and passports and all the rest of it, would you even notice it? No, because you'd never leave it, right? I mean, I occasionally go, um, you know, act like a red state or a Nevada or whatever, but broadly speaking, nobody else on this call would like probably ever leave that network state, <laughs> or, right? Or visit war zones. Or visit war zones, for example. Yeah, I have to, I have to go out into the real world and, and come back with news of the horrors that lurk outside the network state. But it's already kind of there, right? And it's, um, yeah. Although I am skeptical of that ever actually becoming like an actual polity because, I don't know, we, we need a leader to get us there. And Balaji doesn't seem to want to assume cult guru status. And so
3: well, he would argue that you need leaders, right? Like there shouldn't be one singular leader there. And my thing of the network state is, I just think the network state is all these these proliferation of group chats, slowly slowly working their way up to to nationhood
2: which is a good question, by the way. Can we can we switch to Twitter for just one second, Eric? Because so there's a whole Twitter versus Mastodon today. And even I was snarking about Mastodon today, about people who like make all this noise, go to Mastodon and then post a link to their Mastodon thread in Twitter so that it gets engagement, which is like the most anticlimactic thing ever. But I think long-term, it is the case, if you buy the, the full biology vision, it is the case that you're going to end up with decentralized and fragmented media, right? You're not going to have center court at Wimbledon with all the elites in one Coliseum, like... Dunking on each other like you do in Twitter, you're going to have this breakaway thing. Um, and I hear there's this thing called Farcaster. Dan, this is not a plug, by the way, for your thing. But it, yours is like the first sort of real case of decentralized media, right? No,
3: Maybe. I mean there there are other other examples. I mean, right. one one of many. But I, but I think um, to your point, Antonio, the the interesting thing is like everyone wants to say that they're leaving all these different platforms, and then the reveal preference is they all use Twitter for their distribution. <laughs> I was like great. Okay, Twitter doesn't have to host all of your, your content or your video or whatever, but you're right. still going to post on Twitter to actually get the distribution. And so um, as someone who is very much in this space, I think that network effect is extremely difficult to break. And every single person who says that they're leaving Twitter and then posts the link to leaving Twitter on Twitter is just furthering that network effect. So I, I think uh, they have a ways to
2: go before, before that unravels. But how about, and I have this question for Mark, because I'm sure you've thought about it. Like, what happens if a society can't share a social network? Can they share a government? Can they share a nation? Like, what happens next? Because if... You know, if our social networks actually define our intellectual lives, that like at some point our intellectual and cultural lives. we've had this conversation before, right? The uncoupling of information from how stuff moves around the world, right, led to the fact that like our narratives don't follow the linguistic and political borders that define our political reality, right? We've we've turned it around, right? Like we 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 act in groups that have nothing to do. Like we're all in different cities, I imagine, right? What happens when when that when we maximize that and the the people that we talk to and and and, and talk with have have no shared political structure around them? What what
4: comes next? Yeah, I mean, look, my, my reading of it, and again, this kind of goes to the question of what, what is American, like, my, my reading of American history is like, we've never actually had what, you know, kind of what you're describing, right? And so, you know, this, this has always been a country in which you've had people with like, and groups with like wildly divergent group, wildly divergent views, um, on how things should be ordered. And, you know, if you go back and read about, you know, elections that took place in the, you know, 1800 and, you know, and, and then, you know, all the way through the, the 19th century and <laughs> all the way through the first half of the 20th century, like, you know, there, there were even bigger internal fights, you know, than we, than we have now you know with 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 you know even more kind of potent issues and actually with a lot more physical violence, you know kind of associated with it. And so you know, you could kind of say like the 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 genius of the American system is its ability to basically you know have these fights actually take place. you know they they did metastasize in a full civil war once, you know which was a big deal. but you know it you know it happened once, it got put to bed. It hasn't happened again since you know since you know in one hundred and you know fifty plus years. Um, and so you know the, the the ultimate defense of the American system is is we can be fractious like the 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 system actually lets us be fractious and, and lets the republic hold together. Um, you know, look the you know the, the obvious again the, the obvious argument to that is the biology argument, which is yeah you're just mired in conflict all the time you're not getting anything done. You know the my my biggest defense of the American system would be that it's it's sort of it, it's 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 consistent with the the process of evolution right so um we, we can evolve uh, you know this the same way that the the life evolves because we can actually have the fight right we can actually have the the conflict we can actually have the argument um and we can actually you know litig- litigate it all the way out and we can see you know whose ideas you know wh- whose ideas make it and whose ideas get incorporated and and that you know basically progress happens through evolution evolution happens through conflict um and we as a society are are very very good Generally, uh, we're very good at having a high level of conflict without the whole thing falling apart.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of argument to biology, right? That end of the day, liberal democracy actually just like lasts longer, right? Like the U.S. is actually chided for being so young, but actually it's not. American institutions are way older than American ones. Spanish democracy is younger than me. Um, Italy and Germany were unified after the state of Florida existed, right? We've actually had very long, long lasting institutions, right? The longest experiment in democracy is the United States. And I think it's precisely what, what you're hinting at, Mark, right? Which is that we can actually evolve to things. The counter-counter argument to that though is like, yes, in the past we had things like Utah, right, which is basically run like a theocracy until relatively recently, it was this weird Mormon experiment. But what we're having now, I just heard this book called I think I don't think I've ever mentioned it, Revolutions, a very short introduction by Jack Goldstone. And he mentioned that revolutions actually happen when a subpart of the elite says like this system no longer works for us. Like we're actually breaking away. Like it's never the case that the working classes actually revolt. It's like a subset of the elites and like the French Revolution being a classic example in which they actually revolt against, they become class traitors and actually revolt against the very system that produced them. And that's when you get, I mean, Fidel Castro was from a very wealthy family who went to a, a fancy boarding school. He was not a man of the people at all, right? And so what we see on Twitter is that cleaving of, of the elites, which to, why to me, it's slightly more alarming than some of the political turmoil we've had in the past.
4: Yeah, I just think we need a lot more of that, right? Like, <laughs> mark, mark me down as strongly pro, <laughs> right? Like, I would, we yeah. don't have nearly enough of that, right? Right? Right now, the the elite assimilation machine is working too well, right? Too too many of the new high, highly capable people in our society who either you know are born or are you know or, or come here from other places, like too many of them just assimilate into the same, you know, basically the same, uh, you know, the exact same strain of, of sort of American, you know, post Christian, you know, morality that we you know that we've been talking about um you know I, I think we actually need a much bigger fight among the elites And antonio when you mentioned that it reminded me of
3: a book i read when i was off uh during 2020 martin malia who i think is a late professor did a lot on, on the soviet union and he has a book in i think history's locomotives and he actually just goes through starting protestant reformation and, and works his way through 1848 and and then you know uh soviet revolution and just talks about how it actually requires a certain chunk of elites and and common people to actually line up otherwise people people have this uh wrong notion of like it's elites versus this and it's like no you actually need yeah. elites to break off and right. and lead a, a, a mass group of people yeah. for actually to have a revolution happen
4: yeah that's right and that's very consistent with burnham yeah it's, it's very consistent right with uh, with burnham also which is yeah it's basically right. Society, modern society, is going to be oligarchic. Um, it, you know, it's 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 going to be a small number of highly, you know, highly educated, highly capable people. Um, you know, basically determining what what happens. Like that's just you know, for reasons we could go into. Like that, that's just going to be the structure: con- con- a concentrated minority against a dispersed majority. Uh, the concentrated minority is going to win, and then it's it's basically a question of which concentrated minority is going to win. Um, and there's one category right now that is clearly winning. Um, and then I think there needs to be, there, there certainly needs to be a stronger alternative to that. If not, if not several alternatives to that, and you know, that, that, that may be the most important thing for the next 30 years, you know, to happen in the country. And, you know, we'll, 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 we'll see if it does or not.
0: Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now.